गुड मॉर्निंग श्री गुरु नमस्ते वेलकम यू ऑल टू दिस फर्स्ट एवर ऑनलाइन कॉन्फ्रेंस ऑन इंडिजिनस एनवेमेंटलिज्म बीइंग होस्टेड बाय इंडिक एकेडमी इंटर गुरुकुला यूनिवर्सिटी सेंटर आई रिक्वेस्ट ऑल ऑफ यू to be seated close your eyes be aware we will start our program with two sessions of vedic chanting and shloka chanting for 10 minutes so please immerse yourself in this experience shrinivas गणपति हवामहे गविंकवीनामोपमश्रवस्तम ज्येष्ठराज ब्रह्मण ब्रह्मणस्पद आलश्रृण्वनोतिदीमहागणाधिपत नम भूमिर्भूनाद्यौर्वरिणातरिक्षिवा उपस्थते दिमनादमनादे आयंगौ पृष्टिक्रमेदन मातरम पुनः पितरंज प्रयंसुवशाजति वक्तंगा शिश्रिए प्रत्यवहद्युनात्यलोचना व्यख्यन्महिषस्सुव ृथ्वपुनस्तोदीपयामसीपरोपस्पृथिवीमुदेवाधिपरोपृथिवीमुदेवासवी ृंगेशृंगेषण ृंगेशृंगेशृंगेशृंगेशृंगेशृंगेशृंगेशृंगेशृंगेशृंगेशृंगेशृंगेशृंगेशृंगेशृंगेशृंगेशृंगेशृंगेशृंगेशृंगे
त्रेधा विष्णुगायो विचक्रमे महेन्दिव पृथ्वी अंतरिक्ष तत्श्रोणिश्रव इच्छ्यश्लोक यजमती गृणाहीतवती सबितराधिपत पजस्वतीरंतिराशा नस्त ध्रुवादिशा विष्णुपत्गोरा सहसोजा मनोता बृहस्पतिर्मादरीश्रोतपायुस्संधुवाष्टंबोधिबोधर्ण पृथिव्या जगत विष्णुपत्नी ओ धनुधराजमे सर्वसीम तो धरा प्रचोदया श्रीभूसख विमे विष्णुपत्न चीम तन्नो नीला प्रचोदया थैंक यू वेरी मच आई नाउ रिक्वेस्ट श्री नंद कुमार हु इज एन अकॉम्प्लिश्ड एंड मोस्ट साउट आफ्टर वर्कलिस्ट फ्रॉम बैंगलोर विद हिज मेलिफुलस वॉइस He has established himself as a performer at a very young age. He sings extensively for classical dance performances and devotional budget concerts. He has recently started a YouTube musical series, Loka Samastha Sukino Bhavantu, with the sole intention of spreading devotional and spiritual music. I now request him to sing us uh, Lokas which relate to environment. Namaste. वक्रतुंड समुद्रवसनी 
Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you so much. That was wonderful. Uh, one of the reasons, uh, one of the things that we want to do in this conference is uh, is to bring back this concept of devotion because we we tend to over intellectualize uh, everything, and in the process we forget that we are a living tradition, and uh, a living tradition we we have to show our devotion, and one of the reasons, one of the ways in which we can bring out sustainability and bring back uh, sustainability is through expression of our devotion so if any of you um, know uh, would like to sing would like to chant any veda mantras or would like to sing sing any slokas today in the evening tomorrow please reach out to us privately and before the start of the session we would be most happy to uh, uh, have you uh, sing for us thank you very much uh, and now, I warmly welcome all of you to this conference on indigenous environmentalism. Uh, my, uh, 
I'm co-curating this uh, curator, chief curator is Sri Madras Garu. He's a director for Inter Gurukula University Center at uh, uh, Indic Academy, and this is a conference that we had conceptualized about six months earlier, uh, and we called that at that time Indic and Pagan uh, Environmentalism. We wanted to bring together both the Indic thought and the Pagan thought, which is seeing a revival world over. And we had scheduled the conference, but uh, we focused primarily at that time on uh, scholars. Uh, the response was not so encouraging because we tried uh, globally a lot of uh, uh, scholars, but it did not happen. Uh, finally, we we uh, we did uh, schedule the conference in the end of March or 27th of March in collaboration with IDNCA, but uh, because of COVID, we had to uh, cancel that. And now uh, we are doing this conference uh, online. Uh, we are now shifting all our conferences and events online. We had a successful conference uh, last month on rituals. We also had uh, a webinar with uh, Professor Balgangadra uh, uh, this month on 3rd of May. And uh, this conference is scheduled for two days. We will start with a presentation by Nandita Krishna on Hinduism in nature. I'd like to briefly give you a background about uh, Professor Nandita Krishna. She is she's a historian, environmentalist, and a writer based in Chennai with a PhD in ancient Indian culture. She's been a director, professor, and research guide for the PhD program of the C.P. Ramaswamy Iyer Institute of Indological Research and is currently the president of C.P. Ramaswamy Iyer Foundation. She's a prolific writer who has authored books such as Balaji, Venkateshwara, Ganesha, Hinduism and Nature, Sacred Plants of India, Sacred Animals of India, among others. And research papers and popular articles on Indian art, religion, and environment. She's the winner of several awards, including Nari Shakti Puraskara, Sri Ratna, and Outstanding Women of Asia, and has a deal it from Vidya Sagar University, West Bengal. With that, we would like to invite you, invite uh, Nandita Kathadi to make a presentation on Hinduism and nature. Nagaraj Garu, would you like to say a few words? Yeah, just to uh, start initiate the program, let me uh, just uh, give you a feel of how it is going to be. We have uh, a galaxy of scholars, literally it's a galaxy. We have uh, uh, highly uh, senior uh, scholars and uh, accomplished activists uh, and uh, uh, highly learned uh, participants, though very young uh, in the field. We have a Vedic scholar, a Shastrik Vakyartha scholar like Demala Madhaka Srinivas Garu and uh, an IT professional but learned in Vedic side like G.V. Uh, Shankar Garu. And we have a very great professor like uh, Rana P.V. Singh Ji from Varanasi, very well known in the field of uh, sacred geography and environmentalism, architecture, city architecture. We have a very senior journalist like Vital C. Nadkarni Ji, who has already joined today. And uh, we have uh, senior activists like uh, Vibhati Manoji and uh, Rahul Goswami ji. And we have a senior professor like Michael Deneno ji, who is uh, very well ac accomplished in this field. And we have a stellar combination of people 
like Professor Vishwad Luri, Professor Jairi Boxi from uh, United States. We have a very uh, well accomplished uh, uh, American scholar called Edward Butler, who uh, uh, has done a lot of work on polytheism, and uh, it's going to be really, really uh, a stellar combination of scholars and activists. Please stay tuned and wait for a very great feast on environmentalist literature. Actually, the the boost for this conference again came back when we repositioned it and uh, for saviors also. So we the, the conference is for scholars and saviors. So we have uh, very interesting people lined up. In fact, Tarun Chabra, she, he's from Nilgiri. He's worked with the Tora landscape there. He's written a book. He's also joining us. Then we have Shubendu Sharma, who has worked uh, on uh, Miyawaki uh, forestation. So we have a very eclectic uh, uh, range of activists also. Uh, over to you, Nandita Ji. Namaskaram. I think that we have taken up the subject at a very appropriate moment because we have not respected Mother Earth, Bhumi Devi, who has given us everything we have, including the plastics which we are now rejecting, but even that has come out of the earth. And we have not respected her, we have polluted the air, we have dis uh, destroyed habitats, forests, and so on. We have uh, killed animals. We all know that this co coronavirus has come from wet markets. So I think this is a very appropriate moment to take up a subject like this, which is about Hinduism and nature, on which I have worked for many years. Can we start the slides, please? Okay. Um, okay. Hinduism and nature. This is a book that I have written. It was a follow-up to two other books of mine, about which I'll tell you later. But I found that everything about Hinduism is all about nature. Next. Next slide. You know that at the beginning and end of every ritual, we recite a Shanti Mantra. There are many, many Shanti Mantras. I'm going to recite only one. Om Dhyav Shanti, Antariksham Shanti, Prithivi Shanti, Rapaha Shanti, Aushadeya Shanti, Vanaspataya Shanti. Vishwe Deva Shanti Brahma Shanti Sarvam Shanti Shanti Reva Shanti Sama Shanti Reti Om Shanti 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 I recited it fast because I want to get through the slides quickly. And what does it say? It says, make peace radiate in the whole sky and in the vast ethereal space. Once these are the Panchabhutas. May peace reign all over this earth, in water, in all the herbs, the aushadeya, and the forests, the vanaspatiya. May peace flow over the whole universe. May peace be in the supreme being. May peace exist in all creation and peace alone. May peace flow into us. Om, peace, peace, peace. Shanti, shanti, shanti. So, when we start, begin and end our ritual, we do not say, 
oh dear god please look after me my parents my children my grandchildren and so on we ask for peace we ask for the various forces of nature to be at peace because if they are at peace automatically human beings animals everything else which has life will be at peace and will be in a happier situation next please so environmental protection is dharma or the law of righteousness now there's been a lot of controversy about what is dharma and today dharma has become religion mera dharm ye hai mera to tera dharm aisa hai that kind of thing but dharma is not religion dharma is the law of righteousness and the basis of hindu buddhist and jain culture is dharma or righteousness incorporating duty cosmic law and justice it is sanatana sanatana means eternal for it is big without beginning or end righteousness is not something that is right today and wrong tomorrow it is endless and it supports the whole universe every person must act for the general welfare of the earth if i act for my welfare can be sure that it won't work because unless we act for everybody's welfare for the welfare of the earth i cannot be happy so the mahabharata is a beautiful saying i'm only going to repeat the translations dharma is meant for the well-being of all living creatures hence that by which the welfare of all living creatures is sustained that for sure is dharma so i think this is a very beautiful concept of dharma and it is a concept which we are not really that sure about and i think the mahabharata um, definition tells us exactly what is dharma next please in vedic literature all of nature was in some way divine it was part of an indivisible indivisible life force which united the world of humans animals and plants the vedas themselves are dedicated to a variety of pantheistic deities called devas now what are devas shining ones dia that's what it comes from and who are these shining ones indra the rain the star, the moon the sun surya the sun and the moon and dawn and so on so these are all the stars in the firmament these are all forces natural forces which are beyond human knowledge in those days and even today we really don't know why the rain comes and why it doesn't come everybody says it's going to be five days late we think it will be on time it's finally you may have a few instruments but even the meteorological departments go wrong so these are natural forces beyond human control we cannot say rain rain today it doesn't happen so man human beings had to recognize what powers of nature they could not control and were thus compelled to resort to prayer to win the cooperation of the winds and the rains to ensure the regularity of the monsoon to control earthquakes because the vedas were written in north india where the indian plate meets the eurasian plate and there are constantly earthquakes in that area forest fires all over india we have a problem and all major elements of nature so when we ask for peace 
we are saying please do not cause earthquakes do not cause uh, floods and things beyond our control do not cause fire and so on so these are the shining ones indra who was rain agni who was fire vishnu was the all pervading sun as was surya pushan was agriculture ushas was dawn dhyaspitra was the father of the shining ones prithvi mother earth the rivers were sink everything connected with nature was sink and we in the past protected nature we had respect for nature the concept of the sacred environment was established in the vedas themselves and when we say the vedas are unchangeable immutable they are permanent yes because nothing has changed since then we have not got control over the sun or the rain or anything else next please 5000 years ago the sages of the rigveda showed a clear appreciation of the natural world and its ecology the importance of the environment and the management of natural resources the veda dedicates a whole hymn to the rivers nadi stuti sukta that is completely to the rivers and atharva veda book 12 has a hymn to the earth prithvi sukta which consists of 63 stanzas in praise of mother earth and nature and human dependence on the earth and finally creation i mean we come from a background where even creation was questioned and even annihilated nihilated nasadiya sukta india's tradition has been described as india's tradition of skeptical questioning and unconscious humility for the great cosmic mysteries in the beginning says the rahadaranya upanishad rahadaranya upanishad in the beginning there was the self alone he transformed himself into man and woman later he transformed himself into other creatures bipeds and quadrupeds in this way he created everything that exists on earth in water and in the sky he realized i am indeed creation for i produced all this and then goes creation next please the pancha mahabhuta right at the beginning when we had the shanti mantra we saw heard the words it was prithvi shanti apa shanti vayu shanti uh everything the primordial or cosmic matter of nature is made up of five elements what are these elements prithvi or earth vayu air agni fire or energy in contemporary terms apa is water and akasha is space these are the pancha mahabhuta and their proper balance and harmony are essential for the well-being of human kind and maintain maintenance of this harmony is a dharma or righteous duty so we come back to dharma righteousness which is the maintenance of peace and well being among all the various forms of the element that make up the earth make up not just the earth whole universe 
In terms of the human body, this is likened to the five senses. Space is regarded as sound, air is touch, fire is color, water is taste, and earth is smell. Next, please. The Maitrayani Upanishad has a beautiful analogy of Brahman as a great tree with the roots above and its branches below. The branches are the earth, water, air, fire, and space. And the fusion of these produce fire. These four elements, air, water, sky, and earth, originate from the same source. When they move downward, earth was produced. Later, they caused the birth of, birth of Srishti, or creation, and Prakriti, or nature. The harmonious coexistence of these elements is essential for the well-being of life on earth. Nature is just an indivisible part of existence, the existence of all beings, not just human beings, animals, plants, and so on. The earth and its inhabitants are part of this highly organized cosmic order called Rita, and any disruption results in a breakdown of peace and the natural balance. And we are living through it now. I mean, I'm wearing uh, gloves and I was wearing a mask a few minutes ago. All these are totally unnatural in a city like Chennai, which is too hot for gloves and masks. The supreme being of Brahman is the underlying power of unity, pervading all creation. Forests and groves, trees and plants, animals, rivers, water bodies, mountains, gardens, towns, precincts, and seas. So I'm going to try and rush through it a little faster. Finally, Mother Earth is acknowledged as the world itself. Oh, Mother Earth, you are the universe and we are but your children. Grant us the ability to overcome our differences and live, in, live peacefully and in harmony. Let us be cordial and gracious in our relationship with other human beings. Hinduism has a definite code of environmental ethics. According to Hinduism, Humans may not consider themselves above nature, nor can they claim to rule over other forms of life. Traditionally, the Hindu attitude is therefore in respectful towards nature. We cannot go forth and conquer the wilderness. The wilderness came before us and the wilderness owns the earth. 5,000 years ago, the sages of the Atharva Veda said, the Earth's attributes are for everybody, and no single group or nation has special authority over it. The hymn also describes the Earth as the mother of all species living on it. Let the whole of humanity speak the language of peace and harmony, and let us live in accord with each other. Then we would have a perfect world. Even pollution was known in those days, Pradushan, it was once a punishable offense. Kautilya in his Arthashastra says, punishment should be awarded to those who throw dust and muddy water on the roads. I don't know what Kautilya would say if he came to our cities now. A person who throws inside the city the carcass of animals must be punished. And the kind of pollution we are doing, I wish we had a Kautilya today. Environmental pollution of Vikriti was identified several millennia ago. And the Mahabharata says, 
from types of diseases occur in human being the first is related to the body and the other to the mind and both are interrelated coolness warmth and air these are three virtues of the body when they are balanced the body is free from disease and finally charaka in his charaka samhita says was prescient he says due to pollution of weather several types of diseases will come up and they will ruin the country therefore he says collect the medicinal plants before the beginning of terrible diseases and change in the nature of the earth my dear friends today we see that today in tamil literature next please we have the concept of the aindathane which is the fivefold division of the geographical landscape and they are very clearly defined and this would go for every part of india kurinji or mountains which is presided over by lord kartikeya mullai of forests marudam or agricultural lands nethal or the coastal regions and pale or the desert what is important is each thinne was described with its flowers trees animals birds climate ruling deity and all other geographical features so it's very important that we recognize that our ancients knew so much next hinduism has a definite code of environmental ethics as i mentioned earlier they cannot consider themselves above nature nor can they claim to rule over other forms of life as we know all this pandemic has come out of the wet markets of wuhan where we have totally misappropriated and ill-treated animals they are not ours for us to use there is a very strong and intimate relationship between the biophysical ecosystem and economic institutions which are held together by cultural relations so i would like to just quote from the atharva veda the earth's attributes are for everybody and no single group or nation has special authority over it i'm not quoting all the sanskrit just reading of the english from him all the seas and mountains from him flow rivers of every kind from him are all the herbs and their juices too by which together with the elements the inner soul is upheld and finally the bhagavad gita the famous lines vidya vinaya sakalam ramane gamiyastini those who are wise and humble treat equally the brahman the cow the elephant the dog and the dog eater and as long as the earth is able to maintain mountains please says the durga saptashati until then the human race and its progeny will be able to survive the family of mother earth vasudeva kutumbakam must promote sarva bhuta hita and that is the beneficial benefits to every kind of life and hindu traditions acknowledge that all life forms human animal and plant are equal and sacred and thus even appropriately placed to take on contemporary concerns like deforestation intensive farming of animals global warming and climate change all of which have caused our problems so all nature was sacred and what happened yet sacred forests in ancient india today all that remains of that are the sacred groves 
this Nandavanam or the sacred gardens, the sacred trees, which are today just the stalavrikshas, rivers, water bodies, animals, mountains, and so on. Next, please. We will start with the forests because without the forest, there is no life for people or animals. In ancient India, there was a close symbiotic relationship between people and nature, and the whole country was thickly forested. Look at the Indus Valley seas. You see animals like rhinoceros, tigers, elephants. Can you imagine those animals in the Punjab today? No. Once upon a time, the whole country was full of forest, and these animals roamed everywhere. So we see them in the Indus Saraswati seals. The Vedas, of course, have a clear appreciation of the natural world and its ecology. And it's the Vedas are completely uh, pained to nature. Forests were places of retreat, a source of inspiration. For all Vedic literature was revealed to the sages who lived in the forests. Next, please. The Rig Veda says, may the mountains, the waters, the spouses of the gods, the plants, heaven and earth, consentient with the forest lord, Vanaspati, heaven and earth, preserve for us all those riches. Aranyaka, Aranya means forest. And early Vedic literature includes the Aranyakas, which represent earlier sections the speculations of the philosophy behind the rituals and were composed by sages living in the forest. One of the most beautiful limbs of the Veda is, is dedicated to Aranyani, goddess of the forest. We never see Aranyani again in later Sanskrit literature or even modern Hinduism. Yet, she pervades everywhere. Prakriti or nature is Aranyani, Budevi, the earth goddesses, Aranyani, Annapurna, the giver of food, Amman, Devi, they are all forms of Aranyani. Next, please. Rama's entire journey from Ayodhya to Lanka was through forests, and he stays in four different types of forests. Now, you know, plants are very important for locating a text. There are certain historians who will try and say that the Vedas were written in Afghanistan and God knows where elsewhere. When I did take my book, Sacred Plants of India, we noted down every animal and every plant. And all of them belonged to the North Indian plains. They could not have grown in Afghanistan, which has a temperate climate. Not even the Kashmiri Chinkaras and all were there. It was all completely what you see in North India. Similarly, when we wanted to find out whether the Ramayana was true or false, when uh, Rama goes into Dandakaranya, Bharadwaja says, don't go, there are lions and tigers. Now we all think lions and tigers together? No, rubbish. Lions are in West and tigers are in Northeast and South. But in Bhimvetka, there is a painting, 10,000 years old, of a lion and a tiger sitting together. And after that, we did a full study, starting from Chitrakuta to Dandakaranya to Panchavati, Kishkinda. And we listed all the plants over there now and what were mentioned in the Ramayana. 
and there is absolutely no difference. So that is how much our people know and that is the great forests of India. There were three categories, next please. There were three types of forests, Tapovana, Mahavana and Srivana. Tapovana was a refuge for meditation and Abhayaranya or sanctuary where kings, commoners sought the guidance of the great rishis. The Mahavana was the great forest in which all species could find refuge. Maybe we would call it a national park or a wildlife sanctuary today. But there was absolutely freedom for all animals, all everybody, people, animals, tribes, they all lived together. And the Srivana was the forest which was which provided prosperity. That is, people could take produce from this, the Srivana and was maintained by temples exclusively for religious uses. Next. The Arthashastra describes even more forest types because by the time of Chandragupta Maurya, we have more. You have the Mrigavana forest of deer, Dravyavana economic forest, Pakshivana bird sanctuaries, Pashubana, Vyalavana, forest of wildlife reserved for tigers and wild animals, and Hastivana, sanctuary for elephants. And Ravyavana, of course, was for forest produce. Forests, deforestation and illicit tree felling was punishable with fines and maybe even uh, imprisonment if the crime was bad enough. Ecological balance was maintained by the appointment of forest managers. So there's nothing we are doing that wasn't done before. Protection of different species of animals was an important duty of the state. And these rules were generally enforced till about the seventh century. Even today, I'd like to uh, tell you that towns and villages in India are still named after plants and animals. Like you have Vrindavan, named after the Vrinda or Tulsi plant. And in Chennai, you have Mailapur, which is named after the Mail or the peacock. The most famous forest was, of course, the Naimisharanya, where the Mahabharata was narrated, where Vishnu killed Durjaya, Vellava and Kisha chant the Ramayana to their father, Bhagavata Mahapurana was recited here. Sri Satya Narayana Vrita Katha originated here. And when the Pandavas visited this forest during the exile, Balarama visited it during his pilgrimage, during the Kurukshetra war. And here is where Tulsidas composed his Ram Charit Manas. So I think there's something very magical about the Naimisharan. Next. So what do we have left of these Tapovana? We have forests, we have preserved forests and so on. But there are sacred groves. Where I come from, Tamil Nadu, we have a tradition that every village has its own sacred grove. In Tamil Nadu, it's called Koval Kari. In different states, they have different names. We've come to that. But this is the home of the local flora and fauna, a mini biosphere reserve. It's very, very important because the rich plant life retains subsoil water. It has a unique form of biodiversity conservation. 
whereby religion and traditions are used to conserve the ecology as a natural heritage. It is an area of conservation as well as a spiritual retreat because it belongs to the Amman or the Devi or the deity of the forest. And this is the single most important heritage of the ancient culture of India because this is much older than our temples, anything. It's something that has come down over the ages. The tradition goes back to food gathering societies who venerated nature and natural resources. Don't forget, we all are descended from food gathering societies. And we, our ancestors venerated nature and natural resources before, of course, people like us came, cut down all the trees and put up multi-story buildings. These are the tapovanas, where the ashrams of the rishis were located. And there were significant reservoirs of biodiversity, conserving unique species of plants, insects, and animals. Even today, the plants and animals in the sacred groves, are some of them are not found outside the grove. And each grove is unique. So wherever you live, please find out what are the groves. So here is a map of India. And the distribution of sacred groves is given over here. This is what CPR Environmental Education Center has documented. There may be many, many more. There will be many more. Next. And over here, this is... Uh, when you, I'll show you the website at the end uh, where you can go and find out a lot more like Andhra Pradesh. The name of the, the term for sacred grove is Pavitravana. We have documented 677. So if you go there, you will find out the district, the village. I just saw a question. How can the youth of the country, what are we doing? What have we been doing for the last 30 years? We have been restoring degraded groves. We have been preserving groves. Please go back and do it. And don't go and plant coconut trees in your sacred groves. Plant only the local species. That is what I would like to say. Next. So just as we have uh, uh, forests of which we have the sacred groves left over, we had Nandavanam or sacred gardens, Nandavana, which were maintained to provide flowers for the temple. These were also places for meditation and healing. And those of you who are temple goers, you will know that very often, at least I have, I've sat inside of Nandavanam and just meditated. It's a very peaceful place. There are many. Thirumala, Orissa has so many. Vrindavan is itself a big Nandavana. And of course, there's Madurai Kavi Nandavanam near Trichy, which is a very famous Nandavanam. Next. Then we come to sacred plants and trees. Now, the oldest form of known worship in India was not just India, all over the world, was probably the worship of the tree. In the Indus seals, we find one uh, scene where there is a pipal tree with a figure inside it, probably the spirit of the tree. And before it, a man bends in worship. Below are seven figures who may be the Saptarishi. So this is the oldest form of worship. And you find it again and again. You find the people, especially people and the Kejarli, who, uh, which have been 
uh, immortalized on the various seeds. So the value of plants was known. They knew that Tulsi was good for general health, people for its air purifying value. Don't forget that people produces um, oxygen 24 hours a day, which is why the Buddha probably got enlightenment beneath a, a people. The Dakshina Murti, the great teacher, sits beneath the people with his students. He also sits between beneath the banyan tree and so on. Now, what is left of these sacred plants? What is left are the stalavrikshas. These are the trees that first sheltered the deity beneath the sky. Long before temples came into existence, what was the deity? A tree and beneath it the temple. Then in time, as the temple was built, the tree became secondary and was worshipped along with other parts of nature. And so it became the stalabriksha of the temple or the sacred tree. So we have many such instances like Tulsi, rice, just got a Sanapurna herself and so on. Next please. Here you have the Pipal tree puja, you have the, <coughs> excuse me, Matasavitri puja, Tulsi puja, and then the Kejarli. Kejarli, you see in the Indus Valley scenes, and of course it was immortalized by the Bishnois, Guru Jamboji, who said he would be born in every Chinkara, every gazelle in the forest, and uh, said that you must never cut a Kejarli tree. And actually, the whole Chikko movement starts when 363 women went and hugged the tree and they were cut down for doing so. Next. So, why are palm plants sacred? First, there is a close association with the tree. For example, Bilva is associated with Lord Shiva, Neem with Devi, Tulsi with Krishna. They may shelter an object of worship. Some plants are believed to have originated from the gods, like the flame of the forest. Please don't mix it up with the other one, the um, similar tree, I forget the name, but flame of the forest, Butea monosperma, is the red flower. Then the Rudraksha. Some plants became sacred through what might have happened. Yeah, somebody has just said Gulmohar. Correct, Mr. Ashish Vora. It was, please don't mix up the Palasha with the Gulmohar. And uh, some plants, of course, became sacred because of what happened in their proximity, like the people under which the Buddha attained enlightenment, and plants with an important social or ecological role, like the Kejri of the Vishnuis. Next. So ancient Indians knew about the ecological world. I mean, look at the knowledge. They knew that the people produced oxygen 24 hours a day, which another tree didn't. They knew the medicinal value of plants. They knew the economic value of plants and so on. So let us, let us just thank our ancestors for knowing so much. It is a knowledge which we may or may not have today. Next. Then we'll come to the next one, waters. 
uh, water and water bodies have been traditionally held sacred for the following reasons. Of course, water is uh, irreplaceable when it comes to purity, sustainer of life, and therefore it is indispensable for rituals and rites, but it is also a source of aquatic biodiversity. And almost all rivers, lakes, springs are attributed to and associated with the local deities. <coughs> Most Indian rivers are believed to be divine manifestations and have been worshipped as goddesses. And polluting water is such a great skin, sin, according to Sanskrit texts. If you please have time, go and see it, and you'll never ever throw anything in the near in the water in future. Next. So there are three forms of sacred waters. First is, of course, the river. You have the Sindhu and the Panchapa. It's uh, five tributaries. You have the Ganga, Yamuna, Saraswati, Godavari, Narmada, Kaveri, Kaveri, Brahmaputra, which is a male river. And many local rivers are identified with the Ganga. For example, the Kuam in Chennai, where I live. At one time, it is said that bathing in the Kuam was as sacred as bathing in the Ganga. Of course, today it's the most polluted, horrible river in the world. But at one time, it, it was equivalent to the Ganga. It is all the rivers are praised in the Vedic Veda, Nadi Stuti Sutta. And the Veda says that the waters are the foundation of this universe. Waters are called Tirtha or sacred. And they appear as minor deities. In fact, in many temples, you will find the doorway flanked by Ganga and Yamuna. Ganga represented by standing on the uh, crocodile and Yamuna on the tortoise. Each river has an origin myth and the pilgrimage sites you will find are along the river banks. Next, then we come to the sacred lakes. Very interesting. I went to Mansarovar, I went to Kailas, and then I saw why they say Ravan bathed in the Rakshastal and Mansarovar was the cleaner one because Mansarovar is fresh water. Rakshastal is salt water. And there is a channel connecting the two. And it's very interesting. The salt water never goes into Mansarovar. The fresh water sometimes goes into Rakshastal. Then in Kurukshetra, of course, you have sacred lakes. You also have artificial lakes, Pushkar, and there's many step wells, the Vav, Bauli, Pushkarni. And in the south, you have the Yeris. Now, maintenance of these lakes is a dharma. Everywhere you will find that it is regarded as a duty. It's not something you do for pleasure. Desilting is a duty. And not only was it a duty, the silt that came out was used for making deities, like the Ganesh Chaturthi. In summer months, all over the Deccan, from Maharashtra to the south, where you have the tradition of uh, having artificial tanks and lakes and so on, they had to be desilted in summer. The same silt used for making the Ganeshas. In those days, they didn't bake the Ganesha and paint them or made them with plaster of Paris. They made the Ganesha, and at the end of the puja, whether it's three days or five days or uh, 11 days, you 
put it back into the water. In Bengal also. Next. Then you have the sacred temple tanks. Now these are slightly different because these were rainwater harvesting structures. And these were used for maintain, maintaining the groundwater table. So they were not supposed to be used by all in sundry. They were very medicinal because the Abhisheka Jalam goes into the sacred temple tanks and they supported also a variety of life forms and were maintained by temples. Next. So I mentioned, uh, this is the Pushkar Lake in Rajasthan, the Rani Kivav. Next. Here you have the sacred versus the profane. I told you about the uh, channel connecting the Mansarovar, which is on the right. It's a perfect, it's round, so it's regarded as the sun and the moon. And it's very interesting that the two are connected only with a channel and yet the salt water never goes into the fresh water. Next, please. Then we come to sacred animals. India's greatest contribution to world thought is the concept of ahimsa in thought, world, and action. Killing animals has been prohibited since the Vedic period. And the Yajurveda says, no person should kill animals who are helpful to all. By serving them, one should obtain heaven. Now, many people ask me, what about animal sacrifice? Don't forget that the Vedas were a time when there were people who were living, who were also living a very primitive life. They believed in animal sacrifice, but there were also people who thought greatly. In fact, for those of you who are vegans, you'll be interested to know that the first time, first mention of not touching the cow's milk is in the Rig Veda, where, he, where the Rishi says, do not, if Lord, whoever uh, takes away the milk, which is meant for the calf, cut off his head. So that is how much they thought about it in those days. The term Ahimsa is an important spiritual doctrine shared by Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism, which implies the total avoidance of harm to any living creature by thought, word, or deed. It has been described as a multidimensional concept inspired by the belief that the supreme being lives in all human or animal life. So since we believe in birth, death, and rebirth, we can be born as an animal or as a human being, whatever, because it is the same soul, the same atma that we all share. Therefore, to hurt another being is to open oneself to karmic repercussions. Next. So here's the statement. The Rigveda, the Yathudhana, who fills himself with the flesh of man, he who fills himself with the flesh of horses or of other animals, and he who steals the milk of the cow, Lord, cut off their heads with your flame. It's amazing that what is very modern and vegan and all today was to said thousands of years ago. And Atharva Veda says, the earth was created for the enjoyment of bipeds and quadrupeds, birds, animals, and all other creatures, not humans alone. 
And the earliest reference to the idea of non-violence to animals or, or Pashu Ahimsa comes in the Yajur Veda. The Chandogya Upanishad bars violence against all creatures and the practitioner of Ahimsa is said to escape from the cycle of birth, death and rebirth. And Ahimsa along with Satya, Arjavam, Dhanam, Tapaha is one of the five essential virtues. So Ahimsa as an ethical concept started evolving in the Vedas, the Rig Veda, Yajur Veda, and became increasingly central to the Upanishads. Of course, it was taken up by two great philosophers of ancient India, the Buddha and Mahavira, and taken further. So I have a few more quotes over here. I'm not going to read all of them except to read Albert Schweitzer, who says, there is a hardly, there hardly exists in the literature of the world a collection of maxims in which we find so much of lofty wisdom. Like the Bhagavad Gita, the Kural, the Tirukural of Tamil Nadu, desires inner freedom from the world and a mind free from hatred. The reason I'm emphasizing it is because the Tirukural is all about compassion and non-killing. Non-killing of animals and compassion towards animals. So I think these are, this is a very important statement. Next. So how are animals given sanctity? Some were gods themselves, like Ganesha. We have Bhagdev of Central India and Maharashtra, Bhagoba, who were deities. Now, why did Ganesha, why was he so important? Because the elephant is a keystone species. He was the remover of obstacles, who gave a pathway through the forest because he was so big, he could, he could create pathways and that's, that's why he became Vigneshwara. Similarly, the tiger was a prime ecological indicator. He was on top of the ecological pyramid. So many of the animals were made into Vahana, divine vehicles. Some like Hanuman and the dog. Hanuman was Rama's friend, the dog was Shiva's friend. Some were divine incarnations like Matsya, Purma, Varaha, Narasimha. And some were sacred because of their economic value, like the cow, it was essential for milk. The bull was a draft animal, so he became the Vahana of Shiva. And the black buck was essential for the survival of the cage leaf garment which was the mainstay of the desert. Next, please. Some animals were a part of social history, like Mahisha, who was worshipped by the indigenous pastoral tribes. And uh, although we show the goddess Durga killing the Mahisha, it was really the conflict between the agricultural tribes and the pastoral tribes. Because in the pastoral tribes like the Todas in, North, in South India, the Gonds, the Maria Gonds, and many others were all herders of the buffalo. And the buffalo was slowly replaced in North India by the cow. Well, it was not replaced, the cow was there. But slowly, as people wanted more land for agriculture, the buffalo was very much in the way. Then Mahisha lives on as the vehicle of Yama. Next. The totemic 
tradition was widespread in ancient India. I'm not going to read all these. And many clan names of animal origins, such as Maurya, Mure. In the Hindu tradition, animals are recognized as having feelings and passions like human beings. And by recognizing the divinity in animals, they were given a unique position which helped protect many species. Today we see the tigers, everything dwindling. By giving them this sanctity, they were protected. The deification of several animals led to their protection, a safeguard that was lost in the medieval colonial and post-colonial periods when many animals were described as vermin and hunted to death. Next. There are three marga to the to, to moksha to moksha, jnana, karma, and bhakti marga. A human being can consciously choose his path. Animals too rise above the limitations of their birth and need not become subjected, subject to the cycle of life, death, and rebirth. They too can attain moksha. Several medieval saints, like all the people I have listed, Ramananda, Mirabai, etc. Preached kindness to animals and vegetarians. The greatest of all in this message was Guru Jamboji, who died leaving behind guiding principles for his community and said that he would be reborn in every black buck. Thanks to him, the Bishnois have never allowed anyone to kill any animal or cut any green tree. Next, sacred mountains. So, this is part of nature, they are a source of water, life, fertility, and they play a vital role in the conservation of local ecology because they are the watershed for collecting water especially. They are very comprehensive ecosystems and play a vital role in the survival of species like the snow leopard, so many others, even today. Our last sanctuaries are all in the hills and forests like the Nilgiris, you have the tiger, the leopard, they're all preserved in the hills. Beliefs and attitudes held by people who revere them can function as powerful forces to preserve their integrity. Mountains highlight values that profoundly influence how people view and treat the world around. Next, Arunachala in Thirvannamalai, is awe-inspiring and represents the union of Shiva and Shiva. It's a tall mountain. You know, any mountain, it's tall. It's got rocks with strange shapes. They were a source of wonder. And most were places which only the gods could reach. Most of us can't walk up. Now, of course, you have roads and you're able to go up. But even today, Arunachala, there are no roads going up there. Some were designate next. Some were designated as sacred because of tradition, like Mount Kailasa, which is in Tibet, which is the abode of Lord Shiva, and stands out as a compelling and uncannily symmetrical peak, like a child's drawing of a mountain. And it's very interesting that the sacred face, uh, which faces the south, is like Shiva's face. It has three horizontal lines above, vertical line for the moon's, and two more horizontal lines where the eyes should be. So I've seen it and it's quite amazing. And it's believed to be the axis mundi or the cosmic axis in Eastern beliefs. 
Now, was it the mythical Mount Meru? I don't know. But in mythical, in Hindu cosmology, Meru is the sacred mountain with five peaks. It was regarded as the center of the physical, metaphysical, and spiritual universe. And till today, the mountain has remained unclimbed. Next. Many temples are designated as symbols of Mount Meru. And I'm only giving you the example of Angkor Wat in Cambodia, which is a recreation of Mount Meru and the various continents, the seven continents and oceans which surround it. Next. Next. So, mountains, some may be associated with individual deities like Govardhana in Vrindavan, which is associated with Krishna. Some are revered as places of spiritual attainment like Arunachala and Tirvanamalai, Tirumala, Mukurti. Mukurti is so sacred to the Todas that they will not walk on it. And yet, you and I go trekking in Mukurti. In order to be sustainable over the long term, environmental policies and programs need to take values and ideals of local people into account. Otherwise, they will fail to enlist the local and popular support that they need to succeed for conservation. Next, I'm rushing through because I'm already, I've taken more time. Uh, sacred seeds, these are also, I'm mentioning this because seeds are very important. Today, we have the problem of Monsanto and we have all these genetically modified seeds. But traditionally, seeds are closely connected with culture. And farmers choose crop varieties depending on the available soil and water and genetic diversity. The women play a major role. They decide on the seeds to be preserved, methods of conservation and propagation. On the day of sowing, Women keep it before the, the seeds before the deity of the house and worship them. Interestingly, this is not the modern high-yielding varieties like ayards and that are never worshipped. It's only the traditional seeds. And women, before sowing begins, they worship the draft animals, that is the bullocks, the plough and other equipment. Seeds play an important role in our rituals. You know the Navadanya in which, which has to be placed before any ritual. And this has been a basis for Indian farming. There is a symbol of fertility, eternity, eternity and sustenance. So conserving seeds is conserving biodiversity, knowledge of the seed, its utilization. It's conserving culture and sustainability. Before I conclude, I'd like to say something, quote, Justice Vaidyanathan of the Tamil Nadu of the Madras High Court. He said that religious beliefs are protective of human civilization and the environment. He said, and I quote, our tradition and values passed down to us from our ancestors are not wrong beliefs. Today we all think, ah, all this is, uh, non, no, nothing is scientific, unscientific and so on. He says they are scientific, rational, and logical. That is why they worship nature. Even now, many of them who follow our ancestral beliefs continue to do so as they have got abundant sanctity. 
and referring to people worshipping all the Panchabhutahis, the learned judge said, it is not at all irrational. When nature gets sanctity, it will not be ruined. Thus, nature was protected in those days. However, in the name of rationality, religious taboos were violated, the result of which we suffer these days. So I think this is something very important that the judge said and that we must always remember. Next. In our daily lives, we have, we worship nature without realizing it. When we worship, when we have the festivals of Pongal, that is Sankranti, Pongal, Lori, Bihu, we're worshiping the harvest, Pushan, agriculture. When we have Diwali, Deepavali, Kartikei Deepam, we are worshipping Agni. When we have Onam, Vatu Kamma, we are worshipping flowers. And from morning, the Kola, Mother Rangoli, or the Alpana is a form of worshipping. It's also feeding ants. I don't know if you're aware, it's made with rice flour, beautiful designs on the floor. And by doing it, women are feeding the ants. When you encircle the people tree, you are carrying on a, a, a tradition of several thousand years and saying, please, why do they worship the people tree for children for, and so on? Because they are the ones who need the maximum enlightenment, education. We pour water over the Tulsi because we know that it preserves us from coughs, colds, and fevers. Why do we feed the crows? We say it's for our ancestors. But do you know the crow, being a scavenger, keeps your front and backyard clean? In case you don't have somebody to sweep, and most people don't. And why do we sweep the house only in daylight? You're not supposed to sweep in the evening. It's to protect insect life, without whom we cannot be. To end, I'd just like to say, that the Atharva Veda says, next please, it is up to us, the progeny of Mother Earth, to live in peace and harmony with all others. Oh, Mother Earth, you are the world for us and we are your children. Let us speak in one accord. Then the divine is all and all life is to be treated with reverence and respect of Mother Earth. I said it at the beginning, Vasudeva Kutumbakam must promote Sarva Bhutahita the welfare of all beings, people, animal, and trees. Forests and trees, fresh, wa fresh water and clean air disappear. So with all life disappear. Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. I have another slide which I'd like to show you. Next, please. If you want to know more about this, please go to cprec.mit.in where you can have, learn much more about various aspects I spoke to you. We are constantly collecting data. I have a whole team of young people who are doing this work. They're also working on the field, protecting forests, restoring sacred groves, restoring water bodies. And there's also a scientific collection of data. Next. Finally, to end, these are the books I wrote, which I mentioned earlier. Sacred Animals of India, Sacred Plants of India, and Hinduism and Nature. Thank you very much. Namaskar. Thank you so much, Ji.
thank you so much that was very 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 comprehensive it lays a foundation for this whole uh, uh, conference and uh, as you know i've been talking about uh, about this kind of an event for quite some time and i'm so glad that uh, you could make it uh, i would uh, request uh, dr nagraj ji to uh, see if there are any questions that you would like to bring out to uh, ask uh, nanda ji Yeah, there are no questions from my side. Uh, oh, just, not not uh, from your side. Any questions from the uh, from the participants that you would like to select and ask? There is a Q and A chart, sir, in front of you. Kindly go through. There was one uh, question or uh, suggestion from one of the uh, uh, attendees who was asking from uh, Nandita Krishna ji, what what is her advice to the youth? Uh, how to proceed from here? Actually, I saw the question which came up while I was speaking, and I said, "What can young people do?" So I'll tell you what the young people in CPR Environmental Education Centre do. Apart from collecting a lot of data and putting it online for everyone to see, they are actually working online. They are working to restore sacred groves, to preserve sacred groves. they're working with tribes and tribal areas teaching them alternate livelihood so that they do not encourage poaching of animals they're restoring sacred water bodies and so on so young people wherever you are you don't need uh, me to sit in chennai and tell you wherever you are whatever you have whatever sources of nature you have, whatever parts of nature you have which are worth preserving please take it up and you take up the preservation of the whole of that if it's a uh wow or a water body take up the desilting cleaning it because one rain and you know it will all become muddy and dirty so we there's lots that we can do thank you thank you nanda ji you can you. Uh, stay on uh, and what's the balance proceedings as as per your convenience shrinivas yes sir Yeah, you can invite the next speaker, Nagraji. Please may. Yeah. Now uh, we will proceed with the uh, next paper uh, by G. V. Shivakumar Ji on origins of sustainability and environmentalism in Vedic philosophy. Uh, he is from Bangalore. He is uh, uh, he has learned the Veda and he has learned some amount of Sanskrit, uh, but. professionally he is an it professional but did uh, very good work on the vedic side please shivakumar ji please unmute yourself shivakumar ji you have to un unmute yourself ah yes yeah thank you sir namaskar and uh, uh, pranams to the entire uh, guru parampara and thank you for everybody for the opportunity so i begin my uh, presentation can you please put the first slide 
Thank you. So the topic is origins of sustainability and environmentalism in Vedic philosophy. Fundamentally, my proposition is that a solid philosophical base is very essential for us to have sustainability and environmentalism. And Vedic philosophy consists of many concepts well integrated into a framework that provides this base. Next slide, please. The structure of this presentation is such. I shall first introduce the Purushartha framework and what is the concern of Purushartha. We shall then move to what are those concepts in the Vedas that provide a vision for a universe of life such as Rata, Sthiti and the interrelationship between Srishti, Sthiti and Laya. We shall then move to how sustainability is a consequence of this Srishti, Sthiti, Laya relationship and the Rata. How all of this leads to a unique perspective of what change means that limits the need for material as opposed to what we have in modernity. And we shall also see how these concepts in relation with the Purushartha framework works towards sustainability. Then we shall see how dharma and moksha are fundamentals to all of this, whereas in the modern world, moksha has become a suspect and dharma as a perspective has weakened. Next slide, please. Thank you. So we shall dwell upon a little bit on what is the vision of the Purusharthas. All of you are aware that artha, kama, dharma and moksha are four elements of the Purushartha framework. Artha represents the health, the wealth, the security that we have in life and the purpose for which we live are all Artha. Whereas Kama is the collection of all desires and fascinations of the human mind. Dharma, which is not religion, is the all-binding balance that keeps everything together. And moksha is the attainment of that state through renunciation and liberation where we are beyond everything. So the artha gives us the instruments through which we can fulfill the desires and fascination of the mind, which is nothing but kama. Dharma sustains artha and kama, whereas moksha sustains dharma. This is the framework. Important element is the pursuit of artha of two people can clash. The pursuit of kama between two people can clash. Hence, dharma is required to ensure that there is a balance. And the fourth element that is very important, which is often forgotten, is that 
the pursuit of dharma itself becomes very difficult and almost impossible without the pursuit of moksha hence moksha is not something just desirable but a very essential aspect now if this is the framework i introduced the elements of this framework but there is a underlying concern in this purusharthas what is that the underlying concern is that the purusharthas aim to provide a framework of life enabling fulfillment in a most equitable and sustainable manner for an entire society and this definition is important because the physical world's sustainability also comes from this definition of purusharthas so the purusharthas are concerned about ensuring a great today the present without losing the sight of the future beautiful today but sustainable tomorrow so a fulfilling life but in the most sustainable manner and hence you will see in india that grihastha is very important because he sustains today's sanyasa and sanyasa is important because it sustains the future grihastha as a result the concern of dharma and moksha is to create sustainable artha and kama for humanity and hence comes sustainability and environmentalism because they are related to artha and kama next slide please so now we shall enter into the vedic vision as to how that in complementary to the purushartha framework is resulting in sustainability vedas provide a very unique vision of the universe of life and in this vision of the universe of life the physical world the material world the resources that we access are part of this as required for our lives so this is not to be confused with the physical world in total you know all or, or our need to ex, uh, you know explain the physical world this is about life that we lead so that is the universe of life so premise number 1 is that this universe of life is in constant motion that is it is changing undergoing change all the time and this is represented by rita which dr radhika nadita krishna mentioned which is the cosmic order which is the principles of the change this means kama which is fascination and desire and artha money wealth security are instruments of this change of life from one state to another state the second premise is this universe of life should always be in equilibrium or it is always in equilibrium that is today we are in one state tomorrow we go into another state and both states should be in the perfect state that is the second premise which is nothing but the concept of sthiti in srishti sthiti laya the universe always strives for sthiti 
sthiti and that is what is represented in a lot of our vedic uh, you know stories and concerns and sensitivities and even in our epics so these two premises that is universe of life is in constant motion and change and universe of life should be in equilibrium all the time they result in two implications recognition of change as a fundamental reality is there in indian life so change you know in the modern world we keep talking about change is the only constant that is recognized in the vedic vision of life it is also recognized that change is the essential dynamic of the universe that is you know because the sthiti is you know defined as sthiti and rata are defined like this change is very very essential for us artha and kama have the same status as dharma and moksha in this framework of life because of this because artha and kama are the instruments of this change so this leads to a very very unique perspective of what change means which is the crux of this presentation which i am going to deal with in the subsequent slides which is represented by what sthiti and rata means and sustainability is a consequence of this universe of life and the perspective of change and hence environmentalism so this universe of life as i have defined over here which is represented by rata and sthiti it includes the physical world in part but in this view of life the physical world is not a passion to be pursued but it only serves a very minimum purpose of life and that is how the demand we place on material is very less in this universe of life next slide please so let's now look into the concept of rata which is the principles of natural flow that lead to change change is shaped by certain fundamental principles of natural flow veda says which is rata which is the cosmic order and please note that this is not a set of rules but a set of principles and it is very difficult to comprehend this which requires great tapas and hence we have rishis in the system so the rata is such that it is not the flow itself it is not the change itself but it is the principles that determine the change so human beings have some freedom as to what we do and according to rata it changes so we determine how this universe of life changes and therein lies an immense amount of responsibility on us our actions can be in sync with rata which will then lead to sthiti or our actions may not be in sync with rata derailing sthiti and that will result in some consequences so in this architecture of life then the pursuit of our collective set of actions that are in accordance with rata so that sthiti is maintained is very important so this pursuit of the collection collection of actions is nothing but dharma and 
that is infinite. So it is not reduced to a set of laws. It is infinite. Next slide, please. So then let us look into the uh, concept of um, just a minute. Let us look into the concept of uh, sthiti, which is the complementary concept. So if rita is the collection of principles that determine change, sthiti is actually the natural flow of the universe. So it will be in natural flow if we act according to rita. Otherwise, sthiti can get disturbed. But it is important to note that this sthiti is not a static equilibrium. That is, it is not in one constant state. Its nature is to change. Humanity can act according to Ritha and ensure that it is changing always in a state of equilibrium. Hence, it is called as dynamic stable equilibrium. If you know physics, the concept of dynamic stable equilibrium is not there. We will talk about stable equilibrium, unstable equilibrium. Dynamism is in between. But in this concept, Stiti is at the same time is in equilibrium. At the same time, it is dynamic. So that is the perfect state, which in some tradition it is called the Narayana state. In some traditions, it is called the Shiva state whichever tradition one belongs to. But this vision of the universe as being always dynamic, but always in a stable equilibrium is essentially an important sensitivity in the Indian civilization. But note that an important consequence of all of this is that in this vision of sthiti, Creation of the new is integral to it. That is, Srishti is very much part of this Stiti because Stiti changes. And for Stiti to change, Srishti is required. And for Stiti to change, the old has to go. Hence, destruction of the past, that is Laya, is also an integral component of this. As a result, the element of dynamic that is there in the sthiti, which is nothing but srishti, which is the positive force of change and novelty in life. It shifts, every sthiti act shifts current sthiti, but if it has to move to a next stable sthiti, then the srishti has to be good. That is the fundamental philosophy of srishti, sthiti, laya. That is why in India, Srishti is not universally celebrated. Only if Srishti is in line with Rita and results in Sthiti all the time is it celebrated. Essentially, it is somewhat subordinated to Sthiti. So mankind's primary concern is to ensure that Srishti, Srishti and Laya are always in accordance to Ruta and ensure Sthiti. So this, this philosophical construction is the reason why there is 
a great concern for sustainability in India because Srishti is not universally celebrated. It is always celebrated in the context of Sthiti, which is dynamic but stable equilibrium. Next slide, please. So we will now connect everything. We have seen the paths of Rita. The Rita is such that it is, it is a collection of principles. Some paths of change from one sthiti to another sthiti is in Rita. Some are not. So some are good paths of change. Some are not good paths of change. We want life to be always in sthiti. Hence, we want paths of change to be always in line with Rita. And rishis alone can see such paths. Hence, we need rishis in the system. As a result, the state of moksha is nothing but if you are always on the path of Rita, then you are always in Sthiti, which is the Narayana state or the Shiva state. And dharma strives so that human actions are in line with Rita, resulting in Sthiti. And it, it is an infinite set of actions. Dharma in Sanskrit is the binding force, which is dharayati iti dharma. Dharayati is to hold, keep together. What does it keep together? It keeps the universe together in the path of Ritha, always striving for sthiti. We also saw that the nature of the Srishti is such that Srishti... Uh, I think uh, you are uh, gradually moving towards the winding up uh, stage, right? Yeah, I, I will I will take uh, two more slides. So, um, so we'll let's move to the next slide. So, what is the the next two slides are the most important ones. So, the result of all of this is that in Indian philosophy, change is valued because it is part of Srishti, Sthiti, but it is not necessarily progress. It is progress only when it is in line with Sthiti, which means that independently progress and development are not defined. It is always defined. Any creation is valued only when it maintains a certain balance. And it is this philosophical construct that is translated into various traditions, various practices that results in sustainability. Creation of the new is not universally celebrated in India. Change is valued, progress is necessary, but material world is not alone progress because it has to result in sthiti. Only then it is value. And this philosophical construct is significantly different from modernity because in modernity, there is a universal celebration of Srishti. There is near absence of moksha. There is a vague definition of dharma. And the relationship of Srishti to Sthiti is completely absent in the modernity. And one of the reasons why the world in the last 300 years has resulted in a big overflow is because the Srishti element is has been 
over glorified next slide please so um so i'll skip a uh, uh, a lot of this fundamentally the aspiration of the mankind should be to attain sthiti and act according to dharma and not over glorify srishti which means then we place a limitation on how much material we require in this world material world in indian philosophy is fascination desire meaning and security but not progress and development because srishti is subordinated to sthiti and this sensitivity is translated into the srishti represents artha and kama sthiti represents dharma and moksha and hence we have a philosophical rock solid base for sustainability and environmentalism because artha and kama are the roots through which we access the environment and unbridled freedom to artha and kama to through srishti is what results in environment suffering hugely so a lot of sensitivities that we have in veda the celebration of the nature celebration of everything else is a result of this i have one last slide uh, to present next slide please not this the next slide please the next slide please not this yeah so what is very important we have we have seen how dharma plays a role in you know controlling uh, artha and kama but why is moksha extremely important moksha is extremely important because in the path of renunciation there is immense amount of beauty of life that is defined modernity tends to denounce this because it looks like a negation of life however moksha defines immense amount of beauty in the path of attainment of moksha while there is as much beauty in attainment of artha and kama fulfillment of artha and kama through dharma but the path of moksha is immensely beautiful and it is that is what that makes it that, that has made it possible for the indian civilization to sustain that for 3000 to 4000 years the moment we lose this sensitivity of moksha and faith that there is beauty in the attain attainment and it is attainable it, it is real it is comprehensible even for the common man it is achievable even for a non intellectual and a non scholar if we do not have that faith then it is impossible for us to you know sustain dharma and and, and uh, sustainability and environmentalism so this is the summary of uh, my presentation so in summary let's go to the last slide the summary slides please yeah so the salient features of indian philosophy are sthiti means dynamic stable equilibrium it contains srishti and laya for its own purpose srishti is not celebrated universally artha and kama are important for us but they must be in accordance to dharma just as srishti must be in accordance to uh, sthiti and achieving moksha 
needs renunciation and this path of life is as beautiful as attaining you know your uh, fascinations and desires and wealth and everything else as a result in indian civilization progress is defined for the individual and progress is not defined in a material terms for entire society that you have to exploit the earth uh, or any other resource in an infinite manner so universal not defining universal and absolute progress in terms of the material is one of the reasons why sustainability is such an ingrained component in the indian civilization as a result we have community life diversity and so many other architectural components of indian civilization which then become an independent presentation all by itself so this is a summary of my uh, uh, presentation uh, thank you one and all i look forward to uh, any questions brilliant brilliant uh, uh, shivakumar ji uh, wonderful uh, it uh, actually that was uh, uh, the intention in placing this paper in the very beginning of the conference it lays very good foundation philosophical foundation for the discussion and there are uh, more philosophical papers uh, from abroad but because of uh, time uh, adjustment we had to put them in the evening session uh, we are going to have them and uh, there are a few questions uh, from uh, people uh, some of these questions are to nandita krishna ji also uh, if she is there uh, there was this question from mahalakshmi ji one minute i will just check uh, mahalakshmi ji's question uh, how do we reconcile between the sanatana tradition of nature worship versus western thinking on overpowering nature when today in india to the same western thought has become the norm and necessity for globalization that was the question to nandita krishnan ji from mahalakshmi hey, that's a brilliant question that that must be the um, um, key concern for all of us i think one good thing in indian tradition is that we try to find a place for everything nothing is rejected this insight i got from dr shatavadani r ganesh nothing is rejected but nothing is universalized so we have to find an appropriate place for what we encounter in our um, uh, engagements with the rest of the world and find appropriate places for them now we have accepted the progress and development as universal concepts which is a problem but we can contextualize it always and there are aspects in which we need progress and development but everybody all the time everybody does not have to celebrate technology everybody does not have to celebrate uh, everything so if we try to place things in within our civilization which requires lot of study which requires lot of penance as i would say then then i think we will have an answer and, and i'm not saying we'll get answers in like you know few years uh, uh, it will take as many years as we have drifted uh, away from our civilization yeah. and uh, there is another question i am very keen to learn uh, from soumya ayer ji uh, the question is about uh, because while the concepts of scriptures are great and traditional societies are great urban heat islands and climate change also are a modern reality i'd like to understand how these thoughts are brought into society in large scale method 
Also, would like to understand how these concepts of non-violence and non-mastery over animals can be transmuted in Pacific Island societies and to people who traditionally rely on seafood as a, a primary source of nutrition, including protein, iron, zinc. Nearly one billion people, especially when they no longer have access to these sources of food. Maybe that question is. Um... for dr uh, nandita but i will answer it in the way i uh, see it i think it is very difficult to uh, pick a question and and say and try to answer has how to resolve that problem in a universal manner one of the things that we'll have to restore is the respect for a, a community and uh, respect for um, you know organization of indian life into distributed components if we do this many of these things will uh, will settle down uh, all by itself because because there is so much universalization of everything the problems get become extremely compound even in laws laws you know how much universalized we have done it is that is the reason why all problems become universal problems many problems are simple local problems and if everybody else withdraws then resolution happens automatically so this universalization tendency if we stop actually it's not what we do but actually what we stop is the reason why we will get some more uh, solutions so i think uh, uh, now we can move to the next uh, paper uh, thank you the paper is by jamala madaka srinivas d it is on environmental concepts from bhavishya purana thank you madam uh, can i start sir yeah. so about the jamala madaka srinivas ji uh, jamala madaka srinivas garu is a great uh, vedic scholar shastrik scholar he has given the topmost exam of tarka called tenali pariksha uh, which is also supported by indic academy and uh, he is a student of uh, great manidravida shastri garu and now he is a student of advaita vedanta and uh, he participates in the traditional vakyartha uh, arguments and debates uh, traditional system of arguments uh, we are lucky to have such a great traditional uh, vedic and shastrik scholar to discuss about this uh, contemporary topic called environmentalism sir over to you ज्ञानतुरांधस्य ज्ञानाजनशलाकया चुक्षुर्मीतन तस्म श्रीगुरव नम श्रुतिस्मृतिपुराणा करुणाल नमा भगवत्द शंकर लोकशंकर शंकर शंकराचार्य केशव बालरायण सूत्रभाष्यकृत वंदे भगवत ई फस्ट आफ आल थैंक हरिकरण वडलमागारू एंड नागराज पाटूरी सर फर् गिविंग मी दिस्पर्चुनिटी टू प्रसेंट 
uh, a paper on uh, environmental concepts from Bhavishya Purana. So before, uh, so I wish to just explain uh, some of the uh, concepts from Bhavishya Purana. Before that, I wish to just give a small uh, introduction to uh, what is Purana and how many Puranas are there. And then I'll uh, get into the so there is this shloka, shloka uh, which encapsulates all the 18 Mahapuranas written by uh, Maharshi Vyasa. Madhvayam bhadvayam chayva bratrayam vachatushtayam anapalinga kuskani puranani prachakshate. So uh, here <coughs> uh, there are two Puranas that start with Makara, that is Matsya Purana and Markandeya Purana. And two Puranas with Bhakara, Bhavishya Purana and Bhagata, Bhagavata Purana. And uh, three Puranas with uh, the word, uh, the uh, syllable Bra, Brahma Purana, Brahmanda Purana, and Brahma Vaivarta Purana. And uh, there are four Puranas that start with the syllable Va, Vamana, Varaha, Vishnu, and Vayu Puranas. And uh, Agni Purana, Narada Purana, Padma Purana, Linga Purana, Garuda Purana, Urma Purana, and Skanda Purana. So these are uh, 18 Mahapuranas uh, written by uh, Vyasa. And uh, we have a definition for Puranas. So that is Sargascha Pratisargascha Vamsho Manmantaranicha Vamsanu Charitancheti Puranam Panchalakshan. <clears throat> so in all these Puranas, the, these are the com- there are uh, uh, six commonalities uh, that define that this is a Purana. That is Sarga, that is called as primary creation, Pratisarga. Pratisarga is something which happens after uh, Avantara Pralaya. So secondary destruction, after a secondary destruction, secondary creation. And uh, again, there are some lineages, Vamsas, uh, like Surya Vamsa, Chandra Vamsa, Agni Vamsa, and etc. And then Manvantara, regarding 14 Manus, and uh, what uh, and uh, regarding their period of uh, time. And Vamsanu Charitam, uh, this is, uh, uh, this is uh, uh, one thing that we actually miss uh, in the Puranas that uh, Puranas are, are uh, our ancient uh, historical chronicles. So uh, the kings who have ruled uh, uh, Bharata Varsha uh, are dealt in the Puranas, but we totally uh, skip that and uh, forget that uh, part of it and uh, call them as my myth and etc. But yes, we do have uh, 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 lineages of uh, uh, kings. So coming to the Bhavishya Purana at present, so that is, which is why my topic, where my topic uh, is related to. Uh, Bhavishya Purana is divided into four Parvas, that is Brahma Parva, Madhyama Parva, Pratisarga Parva and Uttara Parva. So Brahma Parva has 216 Adhyayas, Madhyama Parva is divided into three Bhagas. First Bhaga has 21 Adhyayas, second Bhaga has 20 Adhyayas and third Bhaga has 20 Adhyayas. And uh, the current concepts of environmental concepts, which I am now going to explain, uh, they do belong to the third bhaga of the Madhya Parva. And there is Pratisarga Parva. They have, and the Pratisarga Parva is divided into four khandas. First khanda has seven adhyayas, second khanda has 35 adhyayas, third khanda has 32, and fourth 26. And then Uttara Parva is the last one, and it has 208 adhyayas. So what do... <coughs> Uh, what is the uniqueness of each and every Purana? Because we know what are the commonalities, that the, the common features of the Purana discussed in the pre, through the previous sloka. The uniqueness is that in all these uh, other aspects, they deal with many cultural 
practices that even today we uh, actually practice for for instance uh, rakshabandhan is a very famous uh, uh, festival and a very famous practice even today which we uh, you know practice so that uh, is the, uh, regarding rakshabandhan the story behind rakshabandhan uh, and etc are discussed in uttara parva of bhavishya purana so in one uh, adhyaya uh, there is uh, the story and the uh, 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 explanation of why rakshabandhan has started and etc in like these ways there are many other cultural aspects uh, uh, that are uh, treasured in these puranas so uh, so to understand the indic uh, uh, essence behind the practices that which we have we follow even today can be found in all these uh, puranas so coming to environmental concepts before going to the environmental concepts i wish to uh, explore the concept of karma according to uh, uh, indian indian uh, that is uh, sanatana philosophy so if you take uh, karma it has it is a layered it has a, uh, a many layers to it that is in the peripheral uh, this thing layer that could be bhautika the inner layer to that bhautika could be daivika and inner layer to that could be adhyatmika and finally the core uh, is paramarthika so what is bhautika so if for suppose digging a pond and consecrating a uh, you know uh, building a garden or creating a garden in something it has a bhautika aspect to it in the in the first layer that is a bhautika aspect is uh, you create a pond uh, so water is there so it quenches thirst to to human beings or animals or etc that is the bhautika part of it so to the bhautika part there is an inner layer called as daivika that is you have something you you attach with uh, it with a uh, divine uh, something something divine to it so uh, that is why uh, you know a person who <coughs> establishes a pond uh, uh, the reward for establishing a pond is uh, swarga something like that so uh, a papa papam and punyam if you violate something again pun- papam is there if you do something uh, something good punyam is attached to it so here comes the daivika aspect of that karma and adhyatmika is something uh, related to karma yoga that is you detach the relation of phala or reward uh, with the karma so so that it becomes nishkama karma uh, and it will lead to chitta shuddhi so chitta shuddhi is very uh, keen uh, a keen aspect to attain moksha which is paramarthika so uh, what i meant by paramarthika is moksha the ultimate purushartha uh, where uh, each and every karma any karma it could be any karma any action or any ritual uh, we can find all these layers uh, to any each and every ritual or any practice so if we keep on uh, exploring the same ritual with different perceptions you find the inner and uh, uh, higher level uh, of uh, uh, the karma the higher level of uh, uh, what you call <coughs> uh, uh purpose of the karma so ultimately uh, everything is uh, directed towards moksha in sanatana tradition so even the concepts which i am uh, going to explore hereafter uh, are directed towards uh, moksha that is the paramarthika aspect 
starting from the bhautika aspect so each and every aspect each and every concept has a bhautika daivika adhyatmika and paramarthika aspects to it and the core of each and everything is paramarthika uh, so uh, uh, in this way uh, any karma uh, will lead to uh, artha and kama bound with dharma or dharma and ultimately to moksha so this is what i uh, uh, thought of putting forward my view upon it so coming to the so my presentation is a very small and very crisp i wanted to be you know very small one so now <clears throat> the concepts which i wish to uh, present uh, are i divided them into that they can be divided into four types that is concepts associated with the establishment of gardens that is arama pratishtha kshudrarama pratishtha pushparama pratishtha and concepts related to water bodies that is pushkarani pratishtha jalashaya pratishtha nalini vapi hradadi pratishtha and concepts related to plantation in general and specific so some pratishtha vidhanas are there for specific plants and normal uh, uh, plantation uh, methods uh, for everything common method for uh, everything that is uh, ashwatha pratishtha bhatavriksha pratishtha bilvavriksha pratishtha so i took these uh, and a concept i found one concept related to the allotment of ground for cattle nourishment so uh, mainly uh, uh, cows here uh, the cattle i meant was cows so that is go prachara utsarga pratishtha so i will be uh, just dealing with uh, uh, one concept belonging to each and every division here after so normally arama arama pratishtha arama means a garden uh, man made vanam uh, or man made forest is called as arama uh, and here it would be garden and kshudra rama is a smaller garden and pushpa rama is a garden of plants which blooms flowers uh, and pushkarani is very famous you now we have you know uh, water bodies uh, that are there in uh, uh, premises of uh, temples and etc these are called as pushkaranis and jalashaya is a uh, is another form of water body vapi hrada is also there are some are small some are big and uh, some are uh, directed towards uh, farming and some are directed towards drinking purposes so uh, in these ways the name would be different and even the procedure is also a bit different for uh, these things and ashwatha vriksha vata vriksha and bilva vriksha so these are considered to be sacred uh, trees and even the pratishtha vidhana is also a bit different for from one another so go prachara uh, is something uh, very unique uh, thing uh, so this is a land where uh, uh, it is left it is given it is dedicated to uh, cattle only uh, it is dedicated towards the you no know, the, the cattle may come there feed uh, and just roam around so this is the main purpose of uh, this go prachara uh uh bhumi uh, so even that also has a separate uh, uh pratishtha vidhana for it so here if you uh, see the word pratishtha is used so normally pratishtha means uh, you know putting some putting something but here the pratishtha is used in the sense of consecration as in vigraha pratishtha that we find in temples so vigraha pratishthas in temples have an elaborated uh, uh, what you call a uh, ritual 
which you know it is it is a transforming ritual where a mere carved stone or a piece of a metal is is uh, uh, transformed into a living embodiment of the particular devata so this is called as this is the concept of consecration so here even here uh, the word pratishtha is used in the sense of consecration so here also a sapling is or a tree a particular tree is considered as a uh, is transformed through these rituals into a living embodiment of uh, devatas so this is something uh, where uh, directly you uh, start believing or you start seeing uh, it uh, as a form of devata so from a mere tree aspect so this is the uh, uh, what you call Uh, that is why the word pratishtha is used uh, everywhere uh, <clears throat> and then uh, there are some common uh, things uh, in this pratishtha vidhanas that is first they invoke certain devatas in maybe kalashas as sometimes on leaves or on flowers and etc after uh, so this is a normal regular puja vidhana if anyone is uh, what you called uh, <clears throat> um, uh, Uh, regular you know a ritual whoever performs rituals regularly they will know this very uh, easily so first they we have to invoke that we have to do avahana of particular devatas and then we give ahutis to those devatas through homa for then we perform homa and then pratishtha is performed so this is the uh, uh, way in which we uh, perform a pratishtha it could be even for uh, vigrahas or anything but this is the puja vidhana we follow everywhere normally even these pratishtha vidhanas also follow this uh, structure so there there are different pratishthas and they the duration of these pratishthas vary from 1 to 3 days so some pratishthas they are done in one day some are two days some are three days so it goes like that so they are very much extensively uh, described in bhavishya purana so first one uh, is i wish to uh, explain about arama pratishtha which comes under uh, you know a garden you know concepts as, uh, related uh, to establishment of gardens so first day uh, it's a two day uh, ritual and on the first day navagrahas brahma ananta varuna vishvaksena are invoked in kalashas which are filled with water and then vamadeva kamala sankarshana vimala soma chandra indra jayanta akash అగ్ని ఈశ్వర అగ్ని ఈశ్వర తత్పురుష వాయు అండ్ మహాదేవ ఆర్ ఇన్వోక్డ్ ఆన్ బీటల్ లీవ్స్ అండ్ వాసుదేవ ఆన్ ద లోటస్ సో ఆన్ ద లోటస్ వాసుదేవ ఇస్ ఇన్వోక్డ్ అండ్ దెన్ దేర్ ఇస్ అగైన్ వీ హ్ టు పర్ఫార్మ్ హోమా టు ఆల్ దీస్ వాసుదేవ సోమా శివ గణేశ బ్రహ్మ వరుణ నవగ్రహ అండ్ సెవెన్ అగ్ని అగ్ని జిహ్వాస్ అగ్నిజిహ్వాస్ కరాలి భూమాలి శ్వేత లోహిత కనకప్రభ అతిరక్త అండ్ పద్మరాభరాగాక్షరవ్యాస్ only with uh, ajya that is ghee cow uh, ghee and some with uh, paramanam that is a payasam made of uh, um, uh, cow milk uh, so some with samit that is a 
it could be palasha samit or anything so something like this so the homa is again it it should be the perf, it is followed by a homa and here uh, we find uh, uh, an interesting uh, description of uh, prithivi devata so mother earth so that's what we call so we have a description of her it goes something like this shuddha kanchana varanabham varabhajakaram shubham mandukastham cha dvibhujam sarva sarvalankara sundarim so this is the uh, description that we find of, uh, of prithivi devata so she is said to be seated upon a manduka there is a frog and she is having two hands one in abhaya mudra and one in uh, varada mudra uh, and she is you know glowing uh, glowing like anything and uh, she is uh, uh, decorated with uh, many sarvabharana ah sarvalakshana sarvalankara sundari so she is uh, decorated with all kind of ornaments and etc so this is uh, something unique that i found to be uh, uh, so we normally uh, keep on saying mother earth and mother earth i think we uh, based on this maybe we can even uh, have a form of mother earth as we have a, a form of uh, mother india uh, and then uh, and then there is something interesting that happens uh, after the homa uh, it is uh, prescribed to that we have to install a upastambha so here upastambha is something uh, people who are uh, uh, well read in mimamsa will understand the concept of upastambha so normally upastambha is the trunk of a khadira vriksha a tree called khadira the trunk of a tree of khadira vriksha is cut and it is taken and actually upastambha is not a physical uh, embodiment actually it is a mixture of drishta and adrishta aspects so it has an drishta Sinas, aspect sinas garu uh, how many more slides you have uh, can you just uh, uh, lessen the details of the puja vidhana and go to only environmental concepts and quickly pass through the slides yes sir uh, actually this was my uh, yeah uh, i was just about to um, actually the slides are all full of details only uh, so the main concept behind the, the this thing the was time that, that is left for us uh, let us just yeah i i'll just complete it within 5 minutes is that okay within 5 minutes i'll be completing okay uh, so there is this uh, uh, okay so i'll skip that and then we can go to karnavedha samskara so this is there is a, a samskara for trees uh, also so normally a karnavedha samskara is piercing the uh, ears so that is normally performed to only humans but here we even find that uh, the karnavedha samskara is also there for uh, trees so this is something uh, again a uh, uh, unique thing that i found and afterwards after all this the yajmana says vrikshagrat patitasyapi arohat patitasya cha marane vastibhangeva karmay karta papayir nalipyate so here uh, we find that uh, the yajmana says that whoever falls from climbing the trees uh, of the garden uh, break uh, he may, may at times he may get injured or he may die but i as a yajmana of this uh, 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 what you call arama uh, i should not be entangled with the papam of his injury or death so that is what he wishes 
and then uh, uh, fine. Then we can go for uh, Pushkarani Pratishtha. So Pushkarani is normally a water body uh, that is dug in rectangle or square shape. Uh, so here Varuna is the main devata, uh, 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 an idol made of uh, silver of uh, silver of Varuna Deva uh, is to be um, uh, uh, placed on the uh, plat on a platform, and uh, Varuna Deva's puja is done. And afterwards, uh, then the idol is submerged in the, into the Pushkarani, stating that I am dedicating this Pushkarani to Varuna Deva, who is an avatar of Mahavishnu. By dedicating this Pushkarani, Varuna, I may achieve the punyam that is equivalent to uh, Agnishtom punyam. So this is in this we can know that uh, uh, by creating a Pushkarani, the person who ded dedicates a land to Pushkarani uh, gets uh, as a uh, uh, you know reward for that Pushkarani is. Uh, Agnishtoma Punyam is the reward of that. And and, and, and again, uh, another uh, here interesting fact is something called as Nagayashti has to be uh, installed. So this Nagayashti is a uh, uh, symbol of Nagadevata and at the same time, it will even uh, help uh, uh, in knowing the depth of the water also, this Nagayashti will be uh, very much useful. And afterwards, you release fish, tortoise, and shaivala. Shaivala is a kind of a grass which uh, um, grows uh, inside water. So you put them so that the ecology uh, the um, uh, uh, of the water is also preserved. <clears throat> and then we go, go to Bilva Pratishtha. So this is a two-day uh, this thing. So Bilva is very much uh, uh, associated to Shiva. So there is something called as Jaladhivasa. So normally Adhivasas are performed in the uh, Vigraha Pratishtha, as I told you before. Normally there we have Pushpadhivasa, Dhanyadhivasa and etc. But here we have Jaladhivasa. That, that is you, you uh, submerge the roots of the Bilva Vriksha into uh, uh, water for one day. And then you uh, perform Archana to Rudra, Kubera and Durga. And in the second day you dig up it and you plant uh, the Bilva sapling. And you fasten some red thread to it. And then again, you perform uh, 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 Archana to Shiva, Vishnu, Brahma, and etc. And a Homa at the same time. And perform Karnaveda. And give Argya to Savitri. And then there comes this Goprachara Bhumi that I was, uh, <clears throat> I told you previously. So this Goprachara Bhumi, the uh, main purpose of Goprachara Bhumi is uh, uh, that the land is dedicated to uh, nourishment of the cattle so that the cattle can go there, roam, feed themselves and etc. So uh, the Goprachara Bhumi, is, uh, it, is, it is said that uh, it should not be on the south or southeast direction of a village or a city. So apart from that, in any direction uh, from the village or city, Goprachara Bhumi can be there. Uh, and afterwards, uh, coming to the uh, 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 thing, uh, uh, there is a unique thing. Uh, that here in the eastern uh, uh, border, plants have to be planted. On the southern border, there is a Setu Bandha. Setu Bandha is nothing but a water body, open water body uh, on the southern border. And a well should be dug in the northern border. And Agnigriham, that is a, a, a place where people can perform Agnihotra in the western border. So these are the borders defined for a Goprachar Bhumi. So he says that I am. I dedicate this land to the cows in the end. So here there is some uh, 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 an interesting aspect to it. 
that is no one has authority to plow this goprachara bhumi no one can reap any financial benefits from this land no one can claim ownership to this land whoever violates these rules uh, are subjected to brahmahatya pap so that no one can touch that land it is uh, left over to only goes uh, only cow, uh, cattle nourishment uh, recently i suppose in up there was a Uh, an issue where a gochara bhumi was uh, given, allotted as a crematorium or something i have gone through it in twitter so even today we have that tradition uh, after by knowing that i came to know that even today we have that tradition so what is the reward for this it is sarva papa apanutti and swarga loka so <clears throat> so that is uh, this so we have as we know here we have some uh, rewards or phalam for each and every uh, ritual Uh, wherever you do not find any phala uh, or a reward uh, then you have to um, uh, uh, relate it to the karma yoga siddhanta uh, and relate it uh, eventually to moksha so this is what i felt so uh, i i'll just uh, uh, <clears throat> chant this mantra from manni suktam and uh, this uh, plantation uh, and all that which is uh, considered to be a modern ecological activity by ecological uh, environmental activists uh, has been proved to be uh, well established in the puranas in our uh, scriptural uh, sources and uh, when it is uh, mentioned also that it is riksharopana or takakodhara all these avratas uh, are there in the puranas very rarely we see the details of the actual uh, ritual this uh, particular bhavishya purana has all the details of those rituals you might have noticed in one of those rituals there is a karnaveda sanskara for a tree also uh, so the tree is treated as if it is a, a and even I, i i didn't even cover there is even annaprasana sanskara to tree also annaprasana sanskara for a tree so you 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 actually give uh, 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 payasam to tree first time after yeah. concept, after creating a garden is it not so moving you are you are treating the tree as a being you are feeding it you are doing everything that you do to a human being excellent uh, sinas garu thank you very much uh if there are uh, if there are questions uh, we'll take up let us let me check uh if uh, there are any questions particularly uh, uh okay one uh, why what is the meaning of fastening the thread that is you tie a thread in the uh, what you call uh, uh, near the root so uh, oh. actually it has uh, two meanings that is uh, as it is a, an embodiment of devata a raksha is given in you know if you uh, convert it uh, if you see from the spiritual aspect and from the normal this thing maybe it gives strength to the uh, sapling uh, to grow further mm-hmm. okay and there is one uh, question from uh, dr yogini vyas ji 
uh, what is the actual reference of manu suktam where does it occur what is the number of uh, mantra uh, it is the last mantra uh, of uh, manu suktam that i have recited now it is the last mantra uh, i think uh, uh, it, it is uh, i have to see the reference uh, particular number but this is the last mantra by this mantra manu suktam ends So thank you very much, Srinivas Guru. Uh, uh, and now I think we have uh, one more paper for the present session. This session ends with the paper from Bina Sengarji, who is going to talk about Petra and uh, ancestor worshiping uh, traditions uh, and the environmentalist aspects involved in ancestor worship. Uh, we are moving from philosophical foundations to uh puranic scriptural textual basis to uh the most universal and widespread and the most ancient aspect of uh, our cultures paganist cultures called the ancestor worshiping cultures bina senior okay sir i'll just uh, share my presentation uh Uh, thank you uh, indic academy for giving me this opportunity to present my paper uh, in the indigenous environmentalism i am uh, uh, i my presentation is on pitra and ancestor worshiping traditions and how uh, actually they came up like they didn't came up it, it's a long tradition since the genesis of humanity on this earth and how it has enriched the notion of environmentalism and the connectedness of the cosmology of entity of humanity to the nature so uh, we'll try to understand a very not understand like we'll just try to know a little bit about that uh, how we do the rituals many time we do rituals uh, which uh, as uh, uh, mr garu previous in the previous uh, uh presentation also uh mr garu had told that there ha- there is a whole lot of philosophy inherent in it so when we see ritual it is only the upper layer of it there is a whole lot of philosophy and down to down to it um there is a um, lot of um uh, adhyatma and parmartha associated to it so uh, in the uh, uh, in the indian traditions the ritual of pitra pujan uh is uh, is uh, usually done in the month of ashwin and we have uh, shukla paksha and krishna paksha so usually in the month of the amava in the month when there is an amavasya this pitra pujan or the ancestral worship is done and in different uh, cultural practices different kinds of uh, respectable um things are ordained to the uh, ancestors so uh indian shastras have uh, explained it in a different uh, in various forms uh two very important sources which we get are the matsya purana and yamaspriti where uh, uh it is mentioned that how we should do the ritual of our ancestor worships and what are the different concepts and why what kind of uh, shraddhas shraddh need to be done uh then in yamasmriti which is of course which is about life and death uh, there are 
notions of nitya namitya kamya vriddhi and pavarna uh, uh, kinds of pitra sanskar or what we call it as shraddha sanskar uh, i'll just uh, as we go through it um, uh, again we try to understand a different classification of these shraddhas that what are these shraddha uh, as we could see just a second so uh, nitya shraddha or the regular shraddha is something which has to be done on um, on a regular basis and uh, just by offering the uh, water we do this kind of shraddha so usually when we do the namaskara so the um, the origin in fact it's very interesting to know that our ancestors or the vedic traditions knew that we all have originated from sun so sun and the whole origin of the cosmology begins with the stars and the lights which even uh, nandita ma'am had explained in the her first presentation so a nitya shraddha is like when the whole every morning when we offer um, to the sun uh, the water uh, in a very sacred manner that itself it's, uh, is a ritual where we are worshiping and paying our respect to our uh, our ancestors नैमित्तिक श्राद्ध इज किसी को निमित्त बनाकर श्राद्ध किया सो नैमित्तिक श्राद्ध इज अ श्राद्ध वेर वी वेर वी आइडलाइज और आइकनाइज अटन ऑब्जेक्ट और सर्टन टेरिटरी एंड वी पे रेगुलर रेस्पेक्ट टू दैट पर्टिकुलर प्लेस काम्य श्राद्ध इज वेन वी वेन वी डिजायर समथिंग फ्रॉम आर एंसेस्टर्स दैट काइंडली अवर एंसेस्टर्स हेल्पर्स इन अचीविंग our certain goals in that also our all ancestors support us in their own power uh, sectors and then they help us a building in our um, manokamana or our desirous wisdom based desire vriddhi shraddhas <clears throat> when we actually want to um, ordain and expand our um, entity of the human entity in itself so when we have the child the desire to child to have some home or other kinds of then we have pavarna shraddha uh, where we actually pay respects to our uh, ancestors and uh, respect them that they should always keep us in their prayers and in their well beings sampindadana shraddha is uh, when pitar uh, or the ancestors if they are unsatisfied we try to satisfy them in different forms goshti shraddha is um, when we actually conglomerate we uh, organize a community together and uh, we celebrate the togetherness and then we have shuddha dharma shraddha uh, where we try to uh, purify our community cultures and yatrarth shraddha which is about the uh, because you know when we leave a land which has been given to us by our ancestors and when we try to go to some other land we have to kind of purify ourselves to also keep a balance in the different land and its ancestral uh, belongingness and then you have pushed pushyar sar push tiyarth shraddha uh, uh, which is actually about the uh, human body physical and soul to be taken care of 
so um, these different kinds of shraad when we try to understand they are basically all about that how we are connected to our ancestors which we call as purvaj and how in every step of our life they uh, empower us with their blessings and their presence so uh, when we talk about the tangibility and uh, as the western philosophy also always talks about the rationality of tangibility or intangible presence uh, often the ancestral uh, uh, ancestral proposition and their um, presence in our life in different forms is ignored which to a large extent our culture never tried to deviate ourselves Dina, and excuse me uh, yes, can we uh, uh, gradually move to the environmentalist aspects definitely i'm i'm just coming to that part so these are uh, actually i just wanted to know uh, explain a certain amounts of rituals because um, they there are rituals which are part of our well being and they have very uh, they have inert philosophical understanding to explain uh, to nurture our culture as well so these are different niyams we have niyam means different kinds of sacred procedures that where we all should do a kind of shraad and which are the uh, auspicious dates which we should follow and uh, where exactly are the different kinds of methods also doing these secret procedures so uh, when we talk about uh, ancestors so who are these ancestors so um, usually there are different philosophical base uh, uh, there are uh, semite and the uh, non semite or polytheistic cultures don't believe in uh, the notions of one origin or like one man and woman brought everybody so origin of mankind humankind in polytheistic cultures comes from the notion of panchbhuta or natural elements as pitra so if we we'll go to our pitric tradition uh, or the ancestral tradition there is a notion of gotra and uh, the utpatti rishi which are actually about different elements of the nature and that actually connects to the environmentalism and the ancestors so our ancestors are not coming from the one human being which is disconnected from nature our ancestors are actually nature and from nature we have evolved ourselves so because of that when we worship our ancestors we just don't worship our ancestors in the lineage we also worship the origin the origining uh, factors which gave birth to our humanity and the entire life being so this is something on so almost every vedic scripture talks about the ancestors and their worshiping or pitra pranam uh, so as we study the puranic literature there is a uh, as uh, professor velicharu narendra also explains so uh, in the puranic um, uh, there is a whole genealogy associated as i just explained that uh, it's the natural element or the origin of the cosmos then comes the natural element of the prakriti and then the different life forms and ultimately the humanity so this is a connected chain of ancestry which all belongs to us i'll just uh, show you one uh, yeah uh, if you could see this is um, uh, we have settler culture nomad cultures and base or forest cultures and these different cultures 
actually define the ritualization of the um, uh, ancestor worship phenomena. So when we talk about forest cultures, the essential or the base culture, actually, um, if we see the formation of the human society, we all actually, as ma'am, Nandita ma'am and my previous speakers have also told about, we all belong to the hunter-gathering societies. Out of those hunter-gathering societies, we have developed three different stages of evolution. So forest cultures remain the primordial base cultures of our societies. Then comes the nomadic cultures who actually came out from the forest cultures and tried to bring out more substantial materialism to the society. And then came the settler culture where who were uh, constantly being connected through the settler and the forest-based cultures. So we see the primordial difference also in um, ritualization of the um, Pitra worship or the worship of the ancestors. So uh, as we could, uh, I'll just go through it. So uh, as you could see in forest-based cultures or the primordial cultures or the base cultures of the human societies, the domain of ancestral land becomes very important. Um, the uh, the whole idea of ancestry and ancestor worship actually comes with the ancestral domain or the land to which we belong. Because land defines our connectedness with our roots. Everything which we possess today is actually has come out from our land to where we have taken birth at or from where our ancestors have come. So unless and until we will nurture our ancestral land and maintain its environmental sanctity, we won't be able to uh, continue the notion or the, uh, the entire sanctity or sacredness of the Pitra or the ancestral worshipping. So uh, the most important aspect of ancestral indigeneity is based on the sacred groves. So as we see uh, the existence of sacred groves in India most likely dates back to an ancient pre-agrarian hunter-gathering era. And their presence has been documented, of course, like colonial era tried to document a lot with the sacred groves because a lot of exploitation began from the sacred groves because all the forest wealth with its actual original biodiversity of the indigenous nature was repleted uh, by the colonial invasive species. And that actually uh, tarnished the harmony of nature and humanity in terms of the disbalance created in these sacred groves. Because every ancestral uh, mm, mm, uh, society or the uh, forest-based society worshipped their ancestors with their sacred groves. So every... Uh, if you'll see, uh, if you'll go to every village uh, in a tribal area, uh, they actually have their ancestors in their interiors of the village. In the core interior of the village, we'll find their ancestral worshipping place. And as we come out of the village, we will find the sacred groves where they uh, put their ancestors, uh, the iconic uh, symbols or totems, as we call as, in those sacred groves. And they regularly worship their ancestors in those sacred areas. Unfortunately, um, as uh, if you could see, uh, remember the uh, presentation of uh, Professor Nandita Ma'am. 
uh, where she has shown us certain sacred, which I've been really um, right now environmentalism, environmentalist, and um, the traditional uh, sacred grow experts are trying to safeguard those very few left out uh, sacred groves of India. But if we can, uh, if many of us who belong to certain kinds of ancestral village cultures, we all know that in every village of ours there was certain grove area, sacred grove area, which was respected by all the villages and everybody used to go and worship them because from their particular sacred grove zone came all the essential uh, seeds and um, essential elements of life to regenerate. So all the uh, fruit plants, orchards, gardens, uh, even the sources to nourish the um, um, Ayurvedic medicines or the healing plants actually came from those sacred areas of those um, uh, plants and the tree territory of the trees of those villages. Um, uh, right now also um, when we talk about Maharashtra and its groves, so uh, right now the sacred groves territory is only left in Western Ghats and in um, Kolhapur or the um, Desh uh, regions of the East uh, Western Ghat region of the Western part of Maharashtra, where majority of the Koli and the Varli tribe lives. But uh, when we come to the Gond tribe areas of Maharashtra, or even the Bhil tribe areas of the northern parts of Maharashtra, there is hardly any um, sacred groves at a large entities left. Most of them have been chopped down by the illegal farm, illegal uh, timber merchants or different kinds of industrial inputs. So as a result, even though tribal villages are there, they are not left with their ancestral groves or the sacred groves. As a result, there is a disbalance of ancestral connectedness. And uh, the major uh, setback which we find in the base primordial uh, forest cultures is the loss of sacred groves and their ancestral worshipping connectedness to their homelands. Uh, sacred groves uh, and uh, places in Gons in Maharashtra. So there was one, uh, I'm just trying to cite a particular uh, event which actually happened in Etapalli Taluka of uh, Gadchiroli area uh, where uh, they found that they couldn't do their one of the ancestral worshipping ritual, one of their Pitrapranam um, vidhi properly because uh, it was it was it became defunct. It, it it couldn't perform. It couldn't happen in the way it should happen. And then the uh, forest dwellers, born tribe of that region at Gachiroli, they cried out and they said that God is angry on us. Our ancestors are angry on us. That's why we are not able to perform our sacred ancestral worshipping ritual. And that actually brings out that what is the relationship between environment and the ritualization in Nema, which we call as ancestral or Pitra worshipping traditions. Um, so um, uh, similarly, when we see, uh, I'll just, uh, because here I have mentioned about uh, we can go back to this slide again. So uh, here we see that in the settler culture, we have this notion of going to Bodh Gaya because we all settled in different parts of the world. And so our sacredness had to be associated to certain 
sacred river where we try to do our pitra pujan similarly nomad cultures have their own special areas for example the banjaras the rabares and uh, the various laman they have their own for example laman tribe or the banjara tribe they go to the sambar lake of rajasthan and they perform their ritualization of ancestor worshiping there similarly uh, banjaras or rabaris always go back to kutch and they perform their ancestral worship there because they all believe that they have originated from there and uh, similarly forest cultures because they have a very moved very less in their entire ancestral life or in throughout their lineage they always respect their own land so land ancestry and our origin is all connected and this is explained through the our a uh, different philosophical text as well so as we go into the ancestral indigenous uh, worshiping culture so we find that it's not very exclusive to us uh, indigenous cultures throughout the world they worship their ancestors for a very famous uh, festival of martes de dias which is have uh, which is uh, uh, an important festival among the native americans in different forms and especially among mexicans which is about the worshiping of their ancestors in in a certain part of a year similarly in kingming festival of chinese uh, they go and worship their ancestors and they pay their homage to them and they try to uh, purge out all their um sins and they even ask for their uh, blessing so that no such uh, further uh, calamity or any kind of illness may happen in their life uh so uh, there is a universal uh, universal uh, universality of um, ancestral worship and philosophical essence uh, to it uh, we are very fortunate that our indian traditions of vedic culture and upanishadic traditions they gave us the philosophical essence to it that why we do it the oldest and most elaborate complex rit- and uh, ancestral rituals are actually explain in rigveda and atharveda where they include hymns for both inhumation burial cremation verses are been done and uh, what even how the mourners have to explain and then again in shrod grahe and pitrameda sutra a full fledged cult of ancestor known as shraddha or faith shrad uh, is been explained even in dharmashastra and purana so Uh, the entire cosmology of birth death and connectedness of this birth death cycle with our ancestry has been variedly philosophically explained in our rituals and also in our philosophical texts like upanishads and also the sutras um so uh, you know uh, so there is a stages of post life of samsara these manuals on death and na- nurture of ancestors are concerned first with the disposition of body in antyashti the final sacrifice second because the belief that a new body awaited the deceased in a heaven no longer prevailed there had to be a ritual construction of a temporary body for the disembodied uh, disembodied spirit in its brief passage into the status of ancestor Uh, uh, actually uh, uh, this is a brilliant paper very interesting points are coming okay, out, but, uh, uh, yeah. can you uh, uh, please be a little yeah, deeper, just... uh, so that 
basically we are running late we are all sure sure sir i'll just uh, this is actually the last slide uh, so this is how we understand that cosmology of life death and connectedness and uh, so we never uh, we never uh, the beautiful part of the polytheistic or indigenous cultures is that we never try to uh, see the body as something which has to be sustained because body goes back to all the ancestors in form of the panchabhuta lakshana which is known as uh, uh, jal uh, agni prithvi akash and uh, the whole antariksh so the uh, whole uh, for us life death and its cosmology with ancestors is important not the body because body is part of the atman and uh, jivan Uh, so body may keep on changing but it is life death and connectedness which is very important as part of the cosmology of being to uh, being um, as an entity with our ancestors and so ancestral worship becomes very important because it it teaches us about that how we should be respectful to our land our environment and also the components all the panchabhut lakshana of the environment that is water land um vegetation um, the different kinds of biodiversity aspects and also those which are being merged in these all cosmology of nature through the forms of our ancestors so this is how i um i'm like um, i'm very happy to share my views on it and Uh, so i'll just thank just you very much ma'am uh, this was really really brilliant uh, we decided uh, a very great value to the session uh, probably people would have not thought of uh, connecting ancestral worship to environmentalism and uh, there are going to be good papers on sacred grounds uh, in the conference but uh, the idea of sacred grounds and ancestral worship how they can get connected is really brilliant and how actually environmentalism is part of our personal kinship attachment to our ancestors is a brilliant idea uh, actually thank you uh, very much ma'am uh, uh, questions please uh, we, uh, we have to move to the next session now uh, after this uh, one or two questions that we can take up uh Okay, so shall I the first paper of the next session is going to be by uh ragnya kaveri ji uh, uh, she is going to present her paper on achieving self sufficiency with cows at the core of indic ecology yes yes uh, uh namaste everyone uh, very happy to present uh, this paper on achieving self sufficiency with cow at the core of indic ecology 
it's I consider it an esteemed uh, honor to present at this esteemed conference. And thank you for the opportunity. So this paper is co-authored by myself and Venkatapati Subramanian from Anadi Foundation. So this will be the broad structure of the presentation today. We will start with the current context of sustainable development and see what an important role indigenous knowledge systems and native cultures have in contributing to the larger goal of sustainable development. We will look at references from the Rig Veda and other uh, Puranas and Itihasas uh, on Gomata. And we will look at cow-centric sustainability in terms of how Gomata or cow can be central in achieving sustainability along multiple dimensions, such as food security, be it soil rejuvenation, plant health, planetary health, and so on. In terms of energy production, uh, like biogas, electricity, and fuel for transportation, and eco-construction as well. So this is basically a paper that is going to call for the rediscovery of Gomata and her potential to contribute to the larger goal of sustainable development. So in the current context of sustainable development, the blueprint that we follow is the Agenda 2030, right, which is based on United Nations 17 sustainable development goals. Though these goals are quite comprehensive, they have little or no focus on traditional knowledge systems. And uh, in every native indigenous culture, we see that livestock has played a central role, uh, not just in terms of ensuring the well-being of populations in terms of their physical health, but also in terms of societal, environmental and other economic aspects as well. History is abound with uh, numerous uh, illustrations and examples of the same. Right now, when we talk about sustainability, we usually talk about uh, improving our technology, making it more green, uh, reducing emissions, and so on. Uh, but there is a lot of potential that native and local traditional systems hold with their low-cost and zero-emission technologies. We will also be looking at a few of those examples. So the paper is basically a case uh, that is to adopt cow as the central aspect of sustainability. A small example of how cows are absent in the current sustainability dialogue is recently by UN FCCD, there was a uh, report that was submitted on global soil carbon. So not once in the entire report, there is any mention of cow-based agriculture, though huge populations depend on cow for agriculture and it forms the backbone of agricultural systems and soil health. There is not one uh, mention of cow-based agriculture or manures in the report. So that also talks about the amount of disconnect that uh, exists between successful uh, traditional uh, sustainability systems and larger global goals and uh, the methods and frameworks that are adopted there. Another interesting case is that in 2018, there was a report that was published that spoke about uh, the diminished bison population and the impact it had on Native Americans. And it highlighted how the speed at which bisons were slaughtered by colonizers significantly reduced the living conditions of Native Americans. So by living conditions, one parameter that was measured was uh, the average height of the people who lived uh, during that period. So as, an, as a consequence of diminished bison population, the tallest of humans were reduced to some, some among the shortest of humans. So that was the amount of consequence uh, that was there. And bisons were also, a lot of studies shows that bisons contribute to several ecosystem functions, such as preservation of certain species, ensuring biodiversity, and so on. So just to get a little uh, sense of uh, when we talk about slaughtering of native uh, species, within a year of 20, uh, within a time duration of 20 years, uh, the bison population was reduced from 10 million to just 500. So that speaks a lot about uh, uh, at what rate uh, uh, these indigenous native species of bisons were slaughtered. 
Even today, if we look at global human population, we are just around seven, trying to reach eight billion people. But the amount of uh, food or the amount of animals that we grow for consumption, just human consumption, is somewhere around seventy billion uh, animals per year, and uh, they are also a huge cause for um, greenhouse gas emissions, especially with methane. So uh, this also illustrates how modern lifestyle is leading to a lot of uh, destruction in ecology and uh, many other aspects, are a threat to most other beings in the uh, on the planet. So in the uh, Indian tradition, uh, there is no doubt that cows have assumed the most central role. In fact, we don't refer to them as cows; we refer to them as go mata. So go mata means uh, cow mother, right? So there is a lot of deep reverence and a spiritual connect that has been established in the Indian tradition. Uh, the reference to go as go go mata is not just because we drink her milk we grow up uh, you know depending on her milk for our growth but also because of a lot of other spiritual aspects uh, involved as well uh, it's very interesting to note that uh, in ancient india the measure of wealth would be uh, measure of wealth or uh, social status of a person would be depending on the number of cows he owned even kingdoms would, uh, the prosperity of kingdoms would, would also be measured based on how many uh, goshala the uh, goshalas they had and the number of cows and the health of the cows um, that uh, uh, each kingdom had so there are also many references of kingdoms uh, you know stealing uh, each other's cows after uh, a war so that's how important uh, cows were and cows were always associated with prosperity and richness so these are two words that um, uh, come to your mind when you read any uh, indian literature so in this presentation we will be looking at references uh, from uh, vedas from mahabharata we will also be looking at local knowledge systems with regard to cow and we will also be looking at their larger role in sustainable development so these are some references so there are innumerable references this is one reference from um, the rigveda uh, i'd go on to read this may the supreme lord complemented by all gods create auspiciousness and spacious cowsheds for our happiness and populate them with cows and calves let us rejoice the cow wealth and contend by serving those cows so you can see that cow and wealth are mentioned together in this um, particular reference and the next one in atharvana veda goes on to say that the devas and people live on cow products till the sun shines cows will remain everything in this universe is supported by the cow so now we go on from cow to cow based products so you can see that devas and people live on cow products so cows were not just considered very important in the manushya loka but also were considered very important across loka so you can see all kinds of beings um, worshiping and uh, holding the cow at a very very high uh, pedestal of reverence so in the mahabharata there are again many references in the markandeya samasya parva of vana parva ma saraswati to tarksha who is a brahmana goes on to uh, list out various boons and uh, uh, goodness that would be bestowed bestowed upon a person who takes care of cows so um, a charity is a sort of a reductionist word to use for dana but godana has been uh, a very very central aspect in the indian tradition uh, godana refers to donating cows especially done by kings and others to brahmanas and other uh, people who are knowledge seekers so towards the end we'll also look at how gona godana to um, for example a gurukula would also ensure that all the needs of the gurukula are taken care of by the presence of that cow those who donate cattle attain the supreme world by donating bulls 
one roams in the world of the sun by giving garments one goes to the world of the moon so you can see garments are not as high you know donating garments are not, not considered as high not even close to uh, donating uh, a cow by giving gold one attains the immortals if one gives away a good cow that is easily milked and gives birth to fine calves one that does not stray one lives for as many years in heaven as there are countable body hairs on this person one who donates a strong young and skilled bull that has infinite strength and is capable of carrying burdens and drawing a plow obtains the world that is obtained by donating 10 cows so you can see that various functionalities of a cow are also enlisted here with regard to giving milk giving calves plowing the land and so on so in the mahabharata there is a particular sub parva called gosha yatra parva so in this parva you can see that kauravas along with a huge number of people go on a gosha yatra so gosha yatra are undertaken to take a census of the cows in the kingdom so they would measure the number of cows that are present they would classify those cows according to their age and their different stages of growth there is also one more story in the mahabharata it's a particular instance where a sort of a helpless brahmana comes to arjuna and then requests arjuna to see, he seeks arjuna's help in securing his cows that are stolen away from him so arjuna uh, and all the other pandavas have a basic understanding that each one would not enter um, you know uh, each other's palace when they are uh, with draupadi alone so if you do that you if they if any of them were to do that that would result in a long period of vanavasa but arjuna without a second thought to secure the cows that were stolen he decides to go and get his bow and arrow from the palace where yudhishthira and draupadi are Uh, present and this also makes him go on a long period of vanavasa so uh, that's the amount of importance arjuna gives to a cow at the cost of going to vanavasa he decides to immediately take action and save the cow in bhagavata and in mahabharata there are descri- beautiful descriptions of huge goshalas with lakhs of cows uh, owned by different uh, kings in their kingdoms so nanda gopa who is the father of uh, lord shri krishna is said to have 9 lakh cows in his goshala so one can imagine the grandeur and it's not a small gosha we are uh, goshala we are talking about with 10 cattle it's 9 lakh cows which is almost like an entire uh, population so that would also involve various administrative aspects like people who take care of their cows their families all of them were given very high uh, importance in the mahabharata as well as in many um, indic references that we see so uh, in the current context when we talk about uh, cows uh, a major um, you know a cause of worry is the decline in native cow population because a lot of studies right now show that uh, a native cow dung and a foreign breed is not the same they don't have the same impact on uh, the land they also don't have produce the same quality of milk uh, so um, you, if you can see at one point in time there were 111 uh, varieties of cattle which is now reduced to almost around 41 the main reason for this is right now cow when we say cow the uh, direct association is only with its milk so a lot of emphasis was uh, placed on producing high milk yield uh, yielding varieties of cows which is one of the major causes for this decline in native cow population so native cow populations have a lot of other advantages like they are robust they can stand in a sun for a long period of time their cow dung is uh, much more rich in uh, a lot of uh, uh, beneficial microbes and uh, the quality of their milk is also much superior compared to a uh, jersey cow and so on which now a lot of current uh, 
scientific research is showing. Uh, so one particular research also showed the correlation between A1 milk, which is basically a Jersey cow's milk, with uh, increased uh, heart diseases in many affluent countries. So um, another may, um, uh, component is uh, the role of cows and cow-based products in Vedic rituals. For example, Agnihotra um, is a offering that is done four times a day and cows are an important part of this offering cow based products are an important like cow dung cow ghee is used we also apply the sacred ash vibhuti on our forehead which is also derived from the cow dung and uh, a lot of ayurvedic remedies also depend on cow urine and cow dung for their functioning uh, bhasma scientifically is also found bhasma is uh, derived after uh, burning or breaking down of cow dung and that also research also shows that basma breaks down heavy metals in the body and is very useful in a lot of therapeutic uh, purposes so now we'll move on to looking at how cows when we talk about self-sufficiency or uh, when we talk about sustainability the main component at least now we understand is that self-reliance and self-sufficiency becomes very important to reduce dependence and to reduce carbon emissions in the whole transportation and other processes so the more self-reliant and self-sufficient a system is the more sustainable it is so now we look at how cows uh, can be used for uh, um, local energy production in terms of biogas, bioenergy, and so on. So cow dung is called gover. So var means boon. So cow dung is referred to as gover, uh, meaning that it is a uh, var given by gomata. It's a boon from gomata. And there is no doubt about it because uh, cow can also be used to satisfy all our energy needs. So this is a picture of a biogas plant that we use uh, at Anadi Foundation. So this basically takes care of the cooking needs uh, per day for at least uh, a family of people uh, living there so at least five to ten people cooking needs simple cooking needs are taken care of and this severely reduces our dependence on fossil fuel based energy or uh, you know lpg or even in a lot of rural areas uh, popularly fuel wood, uh, wood is used for burning and then producing uh, cooking gas so you know the need for that is slowly eliminated so the main reason why cow dung of course um, Biogas can be produced with uh, uh, fruit peels, vegetable peels, and other uh, manures as well. But the main reason why cow dung is superior is that because they have highly efficient methanogenic bacteria. So the decomposition of the uh, whole process produces um, uh, biogas, which is 50 to 70 percent methane. And then, of course, it has carbon dioxide and a lot of water vapors and other uh, components. There are many successful models that have been implemented, not just on a small scale, but on a large scale across India. One such is the example of SKG Sangha, uh, who they and as an organization, they've installed uh, more than 160,000 uh, biogas plants across India. And um, this also benefits the rural populations uh, heavily. And uh, the main idea of using cow dung for energy or biogas generation is that we try to become self-sustainable and slowly move away from the whole uh, fossil fuel-based um, industry. Can cow dung be used for electricity generation? Yes. Uh, a lot of research is, uh, research is being done along these lines today. And uh, uh, it, it's also shown that just having two to three cows can take care of, a lot of studies are being done. And just having two to three cows can take care of the energy needs of a house with just a simple tube light fan. Energy needs of a house can also be taken care of using cow dung. Cow dung also finds uh, active use in eco-construction. So uh, why does that become important in the context of sustainability? Cement is the second most uh, used or most consumed resource after uh, water. 
globally today and uh, the construction industry alone contributes to over 39% of greenhouse gas emissions so that is a very very important area when we talk about sustainability to reduce emissions along those lines and for that cowden has been traditionally used for a long time um, mainly along two construction technologies one is cob construction which is essentially a mixture of local soil straw and clay along with cow dung and uh, adobe which is basically sun dried bricks so the picture you are seeing right now on the screen is a picture of a 450 square feet mud house that we built entirely using locally available materials and that would not have been possible without uh, adding materials like uh, cow dung because cow dung is a central component because of its property to act as a soil stabilizer so research shows that adding cow dung to soil increases its compressive strength uh, decreases its permeability to water and erosion and also minimizes cracking that is formed so this is entirely uh, you built using um, mud cow dung uh, and other local uh, herbs and other additives and uh, one important aspect of uh, uh, cow dung based construction is that it's not just the raw materials or materials that we use in construction that are sustainable it also reduces the energy efficiency of the building because um, cow dung is said to uh, uh, along with, mixed with mud when used for construction reduces the energy needs of the building because it has a very good thermal mass so in summers uh, it's also been a personal observation that in summers the house is much cooler and in winters the house is slightly warmer so uh, i think this would have also been most of um, uh, your experience if you visit a mud house in a village and uh, the beauty of such simple uh, construction technologies is that all the materials that are used are local so it also um, it's also less expensive because cement is of course expensive so it reduces uh, the amount that has to be invested in the building and it also reduces emissions to a large extent so uh, again there is um, research conducted in uh, finding out what is the ideal combination of cow dung is to uh, mud that can be used for construction and this is gaining popularity so of course to build huge uh, uh, bridges or to build uh, huge buildings cement uh, you know is not really one cannot really get away without using cement but when we talk about rural construction when we talk about construction of small houses in villages there is definitely no need uh, for you know using um, cement because cow dung uh, is a very very good uh, alternative the other is also with regard to plastering both exterior interior as well as floor plastering cow dung and cow urine are actively used as disinfectants as they keep away termites and a lot of other uh, insects that um, usually come uh, on the floor when only mud is used and uh, they also uh, prevent uh, crack formation so cow dung and cow urine are extensively used in traditional uh, natural construction technologies so um, the third component now that we've looked at energy and construction the third which is the most important component is food security so in the past 150 years alone we've lost over 50 percent of the global topsoil and the main reason for this is because uh, of intensive chemical based agriculture which basically strips the soil of its nutrients kills all the microbes and it's not sustainable long term because it leads to large scale degradation and desertification of the soil so this is where when we talk about indigenous systems of agriculture uh, right now it's not possible to use traditional because traditional refers to chemical based farming but um, 
indigenous and local systems of agriculture which have a cow dung and cow urine at its core and a lot of fermented products that are created with it have a lot of potential to rejuvenate uh, and replenish the soils that have lost its soil fertility and to increase crop yield and boost agricultural productivity thereby securing uh, you know the country's uh, national food security so uh, there are two major texts uh, which speak about the use of cow dung in agriculture one is uh, surapala's vriksha ayurveda which is a scientific text on the science of plant life and it deals with various aspects of plant growth plant physiology propagation uh, different diseases that might um, that a plant might have and uh, treatment and also the different soil types so in this text a uh, soil uh, cow dung is mentioned as being used in different stages of a plant's growth for example uh, to treat seeds uh, to grow uh, you know from stem cutting when plants are grown even there uh, cow dung is applied across in many stages of plant growth cow dung finds uh, extensive mention Krishi Parashara is another ancient manual of agriculture which highlights the importance of producing manure from cow dung to achieve good yields along with the it lists out also the various of preparation of these uh, manures so cows have been uh, central to the indian system of sustainable and regenerative agriculture so what we mean by regenerative agriculture is that once a crop cycle is over cow dung has the potential to re uh, equip the soil with the necessary nutrients uh, microbes and uh, qualities for the soil to become rich and fertile again so uh, some among the major reasons why cow dung and cow urine are used in agriculture is that it is used to promote plant growth it boosts plants immunity it also improves soil health so when we look at chemical based agriculture you produce uh, you provide the plant with um, nutrients directly and you degrade the soil in the long term uh, but when we talk about cow based agriculture it is both beneficial for the plant as well as for the soil and it also of course increases crop productivity and yield uh, some among the major uh, fermented products uh, that are used are panchagavya jeevamrita amrit sanjeevini and bijamrita these are also now becoming popular thanks to subhash palekar ji's uh, method of zero budget natural farming um, which is also referred to as spiritual farming which uh, doesn't look at agriculture or the process of growing in a very reductionist you know npk way but looks at other larger processes and in subhash palekar's method native cow dung and cow urine form a central uh, aspect uh, so just to give a few examples of how uh, uh, uh are you moving yes. to the conclusion now yes uh, conclusion and i i lend it in 3 minutes yeah you are uh, this is very good this is a very important paper but uh, yes. we are running uh, absolutely time, yes so sure i lend it in the next 3 minutes thank you so um i'll hurry up with the slide so bijamrit is largely used to treat seeds and uh, scientific studies also also show how they um, increase in uh, more germina germination rate panchagavya is one of the most popular fermented products which is used uh, which is prepared using five major components from cows which is cow dung cow urine uh, ghee curd and milk in decreasing proportion along with jaggery and ripe bananas so all of these are locally available uh, uh, materials uh, i mean if there is a cow